Hello, interwebs, and welcome to Close Up. I'm your co-host, Joe. And I'm Ryan. Well, the three months are up, and we got another leisure list for you. Zooming into our medium shot now, I'll explain to all of you who are just tuning in for the first time what a leisure list is. It's the episode we do every 12 weeks or so, where Ryan and I just run down everything we're watching that we haven't talked about on the podcast, that we don't really plan on talking about on the podcast. We watch a lot of things, so just strap in for probably two-minute reviews of whatever we've been consuming. Could be movies, TV, books, video games, live entertainment, whatever. <laughs> um, so that's... Uh, that's the basic idea of leisure lists here. We got a lot to get through, and uh, we try not to spoil anything just because you don't know what's going to be on there. So, zooming into our close-up now, let's get into this thing. We seem to be doing this coin toss thing to determine who's going to start a lot lately. Yeah. So, I'm still going to say Tails. Today will be the day. Just to see if it works. Oh, you know what? I'll, just go. I'll go with what was on the ground there. And it was tails. It was tails. Let's go. It works finally. Okay. Your, um, your first win. I'll let you have it. Yeah. So this is all the way back in like October after we finished the last one, and I had just started rewatching um, Sons of Anarchy, and um, since then I've completely finished it. Uh, yeah, just a great show about you know I talked about this in top ten like shows of all time for me. Um, just a biker gang and. California Charming, starring Motorcycle Charlie Hunnam. Club. Right. <laughs> See? You know. Ron Perlman, uh, Kitty Seagal, some of the best TV writing, TV acting of, you know, in my opinion, of all time. It's not looked at enough, in my opinion, just because it was going up against, like, TV giants at the time, like Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones. It, it was crazy how... Like, how much around that time, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, like, how great TV was in the mid-2000s to late 2010s, or early 2010s. Um, yeah, just a fantastic show. Everybody should watch it. Joe should watch it. But, you know, yeah, I've talked about it to death, so. <laughs> Remind me to write down Ryan Explains Sons of Anarchy. That's... I, we need more ideas for those, so that's a, probably a good one, because I still don't know that much about it, really. So the first one I've got here is The Simpsons, Season 10, still chipping my way through this show. And it's still pretty good. I didn't really know how far I was going to get with The Simpsons when I first started it. I thought, well, okay, well, I've at least got to watch the first eight seasons, because those are far and away generally considered the best ones the golden age of the show a lot of people would even say seasons three through eight are the golden age but i figured well you know i'll keep going probably till at least season 12 because then we're getting into my lifetime we're getting into the show's decline i still don't know if i'm gonna get all the way till season 35 or whatever they've got going now but season 10 still good still really funny on the whole although i do find that the legendary jerk-ass Homer is starting to get more and more prevalent. 
It wasn't so bad in season nine, though I could see the hints of it, but in season 10, it's full on. That's why one of the most cringy episodes of the season, just just scrolling through the list to remind myself what episodes I found one where um, it's called Kidney Trouble or something like that. And it's the one where because he absolutely refuses to pull his car over, his father's kidneys blow up and then he basically refuses to be the organ donor for the entire episode. Uh, so he was a real Jesus. jerk there. But I also really liked uh, the Wizard of Evergreen Terrace where he tries to become an inventor. That was a really fun one because it tries to show Homer doing something smart or really going out of his way to be creative. And he's just he's not good at it. But I like when Homer has more realistic odds to go against because it just it brings out his everyman quality, which is the best part of him. And all the other supporting cast, they all got really good episodes as well. It's still, it's still solid. That was my alarm going off. I'm trying to give myself a two minute cap on all these. So let's let's get back into you. <laughs> I feel like by like the tenth one, you're gonna be like, ah, shut up! I got more to say. <laughs> Just like um, the Oscars. Yeah, exactly. Um, my uh, second one is The Wolf of Wall Street. I completely forgot I rewatched this movie because it's just been so long. Right. Um, yeah, just a Martin Scorsese classic that came out over 10 years ago, which, you know, saying that makes me feel old. Um, I remember right. I remember the Oscar race for this between Leo and uh, McConaughey, and this was the, the one that was hyped up for him to finally win because, yeah, I do believe he puts on, like, the best performance of his career in Wolf of Wall Street. Mm. Just about a, a schemer working as a stockbroker who builds a company from the ground up, but it's mostly just about the parties and all the girls that they got up, uh, they got into. I mean, this is not a movie for children. It's not a movie for teenagers. It's barely a movie for adults. I can't believe this wasn't non-rated because the amount of crap that's in this movie, you're like, there's no way that actually happened, but no, it actually happened. The amount of drugs and like for, uh, for the most F-bombs, most in the movie? swear. Oh yeah. 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 It's got like over 400 or something like that. It's insane. It's uh one of Scorsese's most like entertaining, most like his best. It introduced Margot Robbie into mainstream media. Uh, she was in a few things before this movie, but introduced her. She's got a lot of nude scenes, but her acting is also phenomenal in it as well. So I thank Scorsese for that. Um, she's phenomenal in this movie. Um, I mean, yeah, like just absolute smut is what, is what this movie is it's just com just a bunch of like sex scenes and drugs but it's also wildly entertaining at the same time jonah hill puts on a great supporting um actor uh <clears throat> performance as well probably leo's most entertaining movie to watch him in just a great you know scorsese classic which i can't believe i said classic even though i think it's not that old of a movie scorsese's still making classics into his 70s he's one of the best legend yep. in his own time. Yeah. The Wolf of Wall Street's it's all about the gluttony. You're supposed to kind of, I think you're, it's kind of cool to watch it. And then you're supposed to be sort of disgusted by it. Like, okay, that's, that's so much. How could these guys get away with this? And yeah. it's just supposed to make you feel like, okay, what, like at the beginning it's, oh, Wall Street's super cool. And uh, Wall Street's pretty skeevy. 
and it would be fun for a while, but it, I, I, could, I could never keep up. No, yes, no, no, me. No. And you also have to talk to people. Ugh. Yeah. And sell right. them stuff. <laughs> we prefer just sitting in our bedrooms and talking about movies. Those parties are too. And criticizing them. <laughs> yes, that's that's important. Genuine criticism. Which brings me to The Flash Season 8. Which, all right, I, I'm still on The Flash train. I still haven't finished it yet. I actually started Season 9 just this morning. So I'm on the road to finally finishing this show. And... A lot of people will say, "Well, why why do you still why do you still stick with it? Didn't the Flash go downhill in season four? Yes, yes, it did, <laughs> and it's never really come up since. It's been on a pretty steady decline, but I think season eight's probably the best season overall that it's been for a couple of years. I definitely liked it better than season seven was just way too much." melodrama even for the flash which is saying something that whole bit about the the force families was just excessive and not even like his daughter excess just it was just excessive it's the flash season eight in the last couple seasons really are heavily inspired by joshua williamson's run on the flash which is a very odd thing because barry allen's been around for 60 years and the later seasons of the show draw so heavily on Flash comics from this last decade, which I, I thought was strange, but he did a fantastic run. I'm actually gonna, reading his run right now, and I'm talk talk about that a little later. Uh, so season eight, that's the one where Iris has her time sickness, and that was kind of an interesting plot. She's skipping, uh, she's kind of skipping back and forth, and like she's going to disappear from reality, uh, so Barry's got to deal with that. But it's also kind of a side problem, because he's dealing with the main baddie and his wife is disappearing and he's just like, ah, I, I can't, I can't deal. Uh, I'm have mixed feelings about Allegra. Her whole thing is, oh, woe is me. My coworkers don't like me, but she is because I'm, she thinks she's just being picked on at work, but she is a bad journalist and not that good at her job. And her coworkers reactions are pretty realistic, but it's made look like, oh, they're so, they're so bad for picking on you, which whatever. She does grow a bit. It's fine. Um, the Flash's mother, uh, I guess, yeah, mother-in-law, sort of stepmother, stepmother and mother-in-law, because he kind of married his foster sister. It's weird. But Cecile, uh, his foster father's wife, she's gotten an even bigger role by this point. And I liked her a lot when she first came on the show, but she's very, she's very high energy and she's she's fun to watch, but she's just in it a lot and I feel like she takes a lot of the spotlight when it's like okay okay it's not it's not your scene other characters should be more in the prominence right now but uh the actress is really fun to watch anyway uh the villain Deathstorm was really cool you got Robbie Amell back for it which always happy to see him in anything um Caitlin gets a good story this year it's uh it's pretty spoiler filled but she gets a pretty emotional arc one of the most invested i've been in a while and uh chuck is okay as a character but he doesn't have a lot of depth really he's just cool nerd guy who makes machines um yeah so that that's the flash season eight it's a it's a step up 
from season seven. I enjoyed a lot of the episodes, uh, but I'm just sort of here. It's kind of a comfort show at this point. I just I like the characters. I like the world. And when it's when it's good, it's still good enough. That's good. Yeah, I've, uh, yeah. I haven't given um, The Flash a chance, and I don't think I will. Uh, my next one hmm. <laughs> is... Um, I still haven't gotten that Joe Explains the Arrowverse. That'll be another episode. Yeah, it'll be like a four-hour podcast. Um, my next one is Once Upon a Studio. It's the short that came out. Um, I think, it was, yeah, it must have been October. It was the short to celebrate Disney's 100 years of animation. Um, they basically do like mm-hmm. a compilation of, not even a compilation, but they basically do a bunch of all the animated characters that they worked on over the years, jumping out of like picture frames in their animation studio. And they all get together for like a group photo at the, at the, in front of the studio. It's just really, it's just a sweet little short, fun little short to see all the different animation styles. Most of the original voice actors came back to do a couple voice lines for their characters. Um, hmm. Clearly the ones that are dead didn't. Uh, so they, I think they just didn't have them voice uh, that character or other reasons. I, I didn't really look into it, but yeah, I saw like in the, <clears throat> in the credits, like Jody Benson came back, um, Pedro O'Hara came back, like big names came back to voice the, the uh, revoice their original um, characters. It's just like a beautiful, just like tribute to hundred years of Disney animation um, from the very start of like Snow White till now, up till now to Wish. Um, cute little short. Nice. I I haven't really heard about that, but uh, sounds sounds interesting. So my next up here is The Flash Rogue's Reign by Joshua Williamson, Rafa Sandoval, and Jordi Tarragona. This one is, in this one, Captain Cold goes full psycho, starts breaking his code, and he becomes basically the, the king of Central City. In a way, he sort of, I think it's set during the um, Injustice storyline or whatever it was called of um, Scott Snyder's run on Justice League when the Legion of Doom took over the universe, basically, and the balance between justice and chaos was tilted and now all the villains get everything they want and Captain Cold got to take over Central City. Um, And the Flash... He, he got supercharged with speed force energy and he can't really control his powers very well. So Captain Cold's extra super powered now. Flash is extra super powered and Flash just sort of has to, okay, how do I gather up the resistance and even Leonard Snart's old old allies on um, on the rogues to try and take this guy down? Which of the rogues would ally with the Flash? Which of the rogues would ally with Snart still? And the Flash's supporting cast doesn't get a lot to do. Um, Iris, Wallace, Avery. Um, I like Golden Glider, though, because I feel like she doesn't get a lot um, of prominence in a lot of other stories. But she's very important to Leonard Snart as a character. He he and his sister have a very... um, they're They're kind of the only two people each other they have. So it's 
she, uh, she's got a very important part in helping take down cold. So it's interesting that she's against him in this one. He went too far even for her. Uh, the art's really nice. Um, let's see. Uh, Williamson, I think, is one of the most groundbreaking writers on The Flash for the Flash's entire history here. He's always pushing the world and the characters forward in interesting ways. And I uh, I really respect what he's done. This is, I think, volume 14. Uh, yeah, volume 13. So this is his, up to his 87th issue on The Flash, just, just him, which is a pretty gargantuan run for comics. I'll have a little bit more to say about his work later i've been reading a lot of flash stuff obviously but what's your next one um my next one is um i think because i watched once upon a studio i was like i'm gonna rewatch beauty and the beast um it is the only animation movie to be nominated for best picture so far up to date um and the only reason it lost was because silence of the lambs was in the same year uh, that is my personal opinion. The other three movies, I think we talked about off camera, but I just can't remember what they are. And I think Beauty of the Beast would have won. Uh, yeah, just, uh, one of the classic, uh, Disney movies to spawn during the Renaissance era of Disney. Animation style is beautiful. I think there's a lot of, what makes me really love this movie is the, just like small moments in it where, you know, most Disney movies are really play like fast and loose with the animation or, you know, if they have a sad scene, they'll they'll pause on that. But it's just like character reactions to a scene that has just happened in animation. Like you don't see that. You won't see a lot of studios take the time or at least back then um, to have like a character to react what's happened. And they did that a lot in this movie with the Beast. I mean, there's the moment where... Um, like beast yells at bell for like almost touching the rose or whatever and like screams at her to get out. And then as she's running away, you see him like slowly like collapse into himself. Like what the fuck did I just do? I just ruined my chances at love. Um, and then the scene later on, I brought it up earlier in an earlier podcast, but when he's got Gaston by the throat over the bridge, he's got like an angry face and then it slowly fades away into like, the beast that he's come to be um, like the good beast or whatever, which is an oxymoron. I don't know. Um, yeah. Is it Stockholm syndrome? Yeah. But who cares? It's, it's love. love. <laughs> <laughs> it's love, dude. Um, yeah. I just, it's, it's an, it's a nice, well animated movie. I love it. I think every song is pretty amazing. I don't think there's one bad song in it. Um, yeah, it, it was a, it was a neat w watch. I like to go back and rewatch like old Disney, old Disney movies, but you know, Disney movies from like, I've seen as a childhood and it just centers me in a world of <laughs> craziness that's going on nowadays. Yeah, I should probably go back and give those old Disney movies a rewatch too. Cause I don't think I've seen beauty and the bees since I was little kid and I'm, appreciated a lot more now obviously it's pretty good you'll be reminded what bell sounds like without auto-tune okay. oh. 
Shots fired over here. I'm sorry, Emma Watson. I love you, but the studio did you dirty. <laughs> okay, so my next one here is I've been watching Critical Role from the very beginning. It's, look, I'm a busy man. I don't have time to watch four-hour videos. I, I as a Look, I'm going to have like 30 things on this leisure list. So, you know, if I was fitting video of Critical Role in with all the rest, you you all must know I would not get any sleep for that. So what I do is I just listen to them in as an audio podcast on my commutes to and from work. So anyway, so I started right at the beginning and I think the Crag Hammer arc gets too bad a rap. It's fine. It's... Yeah, some of, there's some audio issues. It's not super clear or anything. The cast is still finding its footing performing live and having to keep the energy up in the room, having to be entertaining. Probably, well, going from a table game, what they were doing for the first couple years to performing live on Twitch, that's strange transition. So I'm not surprised they didn't ease into it immediately but it's still pretty good i didn't get a sense of all the characters or their dynamics right away but i think most of them got a moment uh talus and jaffe didn't really talk a lot at all in those first bits i barely got any hints of percy which disappointed me because i'm a big percy fan uh from the legend of ox machina show anyway it did help that i'd seen legend of ox machina so i kind of knew who everybody was yeah had context yeah yeah, uh, then the next arc was the Trial of the Take. Definitely an improvement. The city of Vasselheim is really well described. You get a great sense of the this uh, of the place and the community there and all the crazy things happening. And the adventures get more fun. And Grog's fight in the pit, well, his fights in the pit, actually, are some of the... They were just... They were mesmerizing to my ears. I I was fully into. I felt like I was part of the crowd. I was fist pumping with it. Just the the descriptions of the bloody raw fight in that pit was immaculate. It was an incredible experience listening to that. Uh, and then the Briarwood arc, which is where I think Critical Role. Just having listened to these first sets of episodes, that's where it really finally started coalescing for me. And I think the difference was that we. Before the Whitestone arc, they were kind of just following. Because someone's not there anymore. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I can acknowledge him, but with the Whitestone arc, before that, we were really just following the plot. We were just a bunch of adventurers doing a plot for general good purposes. But when it came to Whitestone, we had a character in Percy with a real drive and motivation to go to this place. Like the plot was driving them there. But he actually really wanted to be there. It it was so tied to his personal story. The stakes were so high for him that I felt a lot more invested in it because it wasn't just, okay, we're doing, we're just doing general uh, adventuring missions and it's entertaining. This is, okay, this is real stakes for a character who's really come into their own now. And that changed the game for me. So now it's not just, oh, can they generic save Whitestone, it's can Percy get revenge on the people who murdered his family and is a lot more powerful now. 
And because of his emotional weight, the other cast starts getting more weight behind them as well, seeing how far he's going down the rabbit hole of revenge. And can they pull him out of it? And oh, and actually, now we have to get serious. It's not just jokes and goofiness anymore. It's we're actually characters who have to interact in this dark and dangerous place. And Tiberius isn't as bad as people think. He, he's he's fine. He's funny. A lot of the time, sometimes he takes the jokes too far, but I think Orion gets too much hate anyway. I'm on about episode 36 right now. And so I'm just nice. about where season one of Legend of Vox Machina mm-hmm. ended. Right. It's funny you bring up like audio issues. I remember because I've also seen like the first few episodes of like the early streams and I had the same thought, but then also you got to think about like when this was being recorded, it was streaming back in like, yeah, 2015, which I mean, was kind of just getting into its heyday. It wasn't, it's not as super popular as it is now, right? With all the different streamers. So like yeah. audio issues were plaguing the internet here and there, yeah, especially doing people. live, like, yeah. yeah. Eight people especially doing like, all trying to balance live. That's ridiculous. Like, who would think to do that? The fact that it's cohesive <laughs> at all is a minor miracle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, uh, my next one is um, Spider-Man 2 PS5. Um, right. My most anticipated... Oh, fuck. I should have shown you the statue. Oh, well. It's over there. Um, I got it's the legendary... It's... <sighs> God damn it. It's uh, for the video listeners. It is the game that lost... There he is. Wait, how does my finger work? There we go. He's right there. <laughs> Next to Luke Skywalker, lightsaber, and uh, Red Hood mask. Um, <clears throat> it is the runner-up to video game of the year. <laughs> um, it is the follow-up sequel to Spider-Man 2018. It is loads of fun. You get to play as both Peter and Miles. They throw a little twist here at you. There's actual boss fights this time, uh, like more than just two. Uh, They've basically just, you know, kept the same game mechanics from the first game and and the Miles Morales game, but improved the swinging like a little bit. Um, But it wasn't, didn't really need to be improved from those first two games. Uh, Miles is a lot of fun to play. Peter's just as fun to play. Uh, Yuri, the voice actor for Peter, does a phenomenal job. The uh, costumes are really good. You know, there's a lot less than last year, but also you get two different Spider-Men, and Miles definitely has some of the more creative ones, which I feel... I don't think Insomniac is more partial to Miles than Peter, but I think they just have more... They feel like they have more of creative license for Miles, which kind of makes sense. Because all the Peter stuff is... yeah. And also Peter is like a lot of his costumes are just from comics or TV shows. Um, didn't get a spectacular Spider-Man suit. Rough. Um, a little sad. But uh, the Venom in it is great. How they handle Venom is amazing. Um, um, Mary Jane is awesome in it. Uh, she plays a great... There's a, like a great little... It's a Mary Jane... It's a love interest in a Spider-Man triple A media... That's not annoying or screaming all the time or just dies instantly. So that's good. Um, (laughs) Throwing shade at some of the live action stuff. But um, 
it's a it's a fantastic game. It made my top ten um, media of the year. Super fun. I and I've platinumed it, uh, platinumed it too. So I was really sad when I did platinum it because I was like, oh, now I'm done with Spider Man Two. It's like one of those games that you don't want to finish, but you you have to finish. Can't wait for New Game Plus because I'm gonna go right back into it. So would you say it's better or on par with the first one? I say it's better. There's some people online who are idiots and say that it's worse than Spider-Man because they feel the story was too safe. I think the first game story is good. I just think this one in terms of like character development and overall spider, like the Spider-Man characters, they were more close to the source material than the first game, but also put their own spin on it. I think it's a much better game overall. Spider-Man 2018 is great. It's one of the best Spider-Man games I've played, but Spider-Man 2, I think, is like a point higher. Nice. Next up for me is Medici Season 2. The start of Medici, The Magnificent. I enjoyed Masters of Florence when I watched it. Richard Madden was really good in it. It was a solid season of TV. It was good. I like Medici the Magnificent more in basically every way. Because it, it's got basically everything you want in a, in a decent show. It's got, it's got good melodrama, romance, action scenes, political intrigue. It's a, it's a historical show based on real people. So a lot of this stuff happened in broad strokes. It's a, it's a great sense of time and place. You really uh, immerse yourself in, in the culture of Florence, in the Renaissance, and this banking family that had a pulse on the politics of the time. It's, it's about their political dealings and their rivalry with the Patsy banking clan. Uh, the main antagonist of this season is played by Sean Bean, and he brings so much gravitas to the show in general, but to that villain. Um, the Daniel Sharman is Lorenzo, uh, Medici, Bradley James is Giuliano. They were incredible as well. Um, I just, I like everything more than season one, just because the actors could actually emote this time. Season one was very dour and the color palette was more gray and everybody was so much more serious but in season two, everybody's full of life and love and just enjoying life as best they can before everything falls apart on them and having to navigate all this politics. It's just, it's really interesting and enjoyable show. And I'm looking forward to season three whenever I get around to it. Awesome. I haven't even heard of that show. It's on um, Netflix. Ah. Gotcha. Um, so after watching Spider-Man 2, I instinctively just bought the Spider-Verse movies on 4K and decided to watch them back to back. And uh, oh. yeah, they're still phenomenal. Across is, you know, my favorite movie of last year. Uh, Spider Into the Spider-Verse is one of the big uh, best like surprise films to come out in the last <clears throat> few years. Miles as a character is great. He is the embodiment of Spider-Man, even though some haters will say he's not, but those people are dumb. Um, yeah, and Across the Spider-Verse is great. It's like a great Empire Strikes Back version of Spider-Man. 
Um, I'm being real quick with this one because we've talked nothing but praise about it for the past year. So, yeah. Yeah. Great movies. Next up for me is Wonder Woman by G. Willow Wilson, Jesus Marino, Tom Derenick, and Germanico. (laughs) Kathleen Kennedy. I was just making a joke. Like she, no, yeah. she's in the comic book movies now. Wonder <laughs> Woman by Kathleen Kennedy. I kind I know exactly how that would go. <laughs> just about. Uh, DC yeah, so in, needs more women. It's got the biggest. <laughs> she's, it's she's got the biggest. The biggest one since 1940. <laughs> okay. Okay, uh, okay yeah, Kathleen. So, <laughs> so this one, Wonder Woman goes against her age-old enemy, the cheetah. In this one, Cheetah has this god-slaying sword. And, okay, sorry, spoilers for this one, but it's kind of the premise of this book. But she kills Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And with Aphrodite's death, love in the world starts to die. And, well, love is one of Wonder Woman's core tenets as a, as a human being. It's what she, it's part of why she fights her fight in the world, um, is for love of her friends and just humanity in general but with love fading in the world she starts to wonder well why am i fighting again and that allows and cheetah is trying to work towards a path uh to her own godhood uh just being powerful enough to slay a god was something uh so wonder woman has to team up with aphrodite's uh with Aphrodite's offspring to um, just to see if they can bring love back to the world, however they possibly can. And um, so she's wonder woman's losing her faith and purpose. And she, her, her relationship with Steve Trevor starts to fracture at this point too, because they were already having problems, but then love in the world all it just disappears and they're like, yeah, okay. But like our problems are pretty bad now though. Actually they have to reason it out more uh, without all the emotional baggage behind it. So this one was, it, it was solid. It wasn't, it wasn't great, but it's just, it's wonder woman interacting with Greek mythology, doing, throwing her and in, into, all that that that's what I like to see Wonder Woman do just interact with fantastical elements and be a beacon of love and truth and all that so yeah had me a Greek mythology um <laughs> uh, next up a movie that I have put off watching for the longest time just because of like critical bashing at the time uh, but uh you know recent events in my life maybe want to see it was a, a knight's tale starring heath ledger all right this is the most mixed feeling movie i've ever had in my life it's so strange because everything visually about it is great like the actual jousting is actual jousting the mm-hmm. stunts are incredible i think the acting is stellar some like some of the biggest names in Hollywood, uh, like, got started out here. Well, not the biggest, but, like, you know what I mean. Like, some people got started out here and got famous later on in television as well. Um, I mean, Paul Bettany's in this movie, Alan Tudyk. 
Um, Heath Ledger, of course, if he, you know, was still around, um, he probably would have been a giant. Uh, and it's just one of those movies that's like, like, it's a feel good fantasy movie about this guy, this guy who wants to be a knight and he's, he, um, takes on the identity of, uh, a knight he was squiring for. Um, and then he just goes around to different tournaments, earning money. It's just one of those great, like, let's try. It's one of those, we've talked about this before, like one of those mid two thousands movie. That's like, Hey, I have an idea. Let's just make the movie. And then producers are like, okay. Let's just do it. But the reason it's so mixed, the soundtrack is like all 80s rock, like 70s rock. I mean, the first thing that you hear, I'm pretty sure, is We Will Rock You by Queen. It's like the crowd clapping along to it. And just, it's like, it gives me the Greatest Showman vibes of just like, what era are we in? Because like in The Greatest Showman, there's like strobe lights there. (laughs) There's like hip hop songs and all that. When I watched it the so long ago, I had the same impression, and then I thought, whatever, <laughs> it's just a fun no. Movie. Yeah, I, I yeah, I thought he, that like halfway through as I was watching, I was like, you know what, it's made its choice, and I'm going to accept it. Roll with it, and you know, it's and I a, rolled with it. It's a goofy, choice. yeah, it's a goofy fun movie. Heath Ledger is incredible in it. I mean, his emotions in it are great. So there's some there's some dialogue that's fantastic and there's some that is terrible. I think the biggest trash line and is like, you're just a stupid girl with stupid problems. Like I hear it's like, you're a child. Why are you saying that? Um, but there's some like I have it written down here where it's like uh, one of the I think it's the blacksmith uh, lady who's in Breaking Bad. She says, why must ever or maybe it's her his love interest. It's like, why must everything for a woman be on a man's schedule? Like, that's a great line. I don't know who came up with that, but that's genius. And then there's also, like, a cheesy romantic line that I had to write down. It was, you speak of her as if she's a target. Isn't she? No. She's the arrow. Like, what a brilliant, like, that's a great line. I don't care what anybody says. Um, But, yeah, just a nice, fun movie to watch. Um, There's a few things in it that I had problems with it. But, overall, great movie. Um Everybody should watch it. Everybody should. If you just want to have fun watching something like a nice little romantic, um, somewhat comedy, but also somewhat like mid 2000s drama at the same time, it's a great mixing bag of Hollywood throwing in different spices and seeing what sticks. It's a lot of fun. And I think everybody should give it a try. Like I did. And like I put it off for so long because critics have bashed it for so long, but don't listen to them. Yeah. And we're including ourselves. We're stupid. We have dumb takes as well. <laughs> yes, we do. Not naming names because I can't think of any examples. Your team green of House of the Dragon. Anyway, what's your next pick? Last of Us Part <laughs> 2 is good. Joe! <laughs> uh, Priscilla, the antithesis to the Elvis movie, is kind of a perfect companion piece, I figure. Because uh, they basically cover the same time period just from Priscilla's point of view. And, well, what I'll, what the good thing I'll say about it is uh, Kaylee Spaney is I- incredible as Priscilla. She's She's got a good screen presence and really makes you empathize with this character. Uh, the bad, the movie is pretty repetitive it's 
okay, okay, I'm invested, I'm invested, okay, and now she's just hanging out at Graceland, and she's depressed because she can't do anything else, because Elvis doesn't let her go anywhere else, she's just a housewife, basically, but she doesn't even get to do housewife things, she's just kind of there for when Elvis comes home, uh, she's just kind of like a doll that he makes up how he wants, and thinks how he w- thinks how he wants her to think and does everything he wants her to do. She's basically just whatever he wants her to be, whenever he wants her to be it. It's uh it's a toxic romance the which obviously she starts to grow out of. But most of the movie is just her being depressed around Graceland and I'm like, okay, I get it. <laughs> I, I I get it. Can we can we get to the part where things start changing? Um, but it is emotionally investing. It is, it's good all around when everything's said and done. Some decent filmmaking in there. I really like the way, um, the use of color in it. How the things Priscilla likes are bright and colorful. And when she's feeling dour, the, the color shifts and it's, and it's interesting, like Graceland, for example, when she first gets there, it's bright and colorful. Later on, it's more dour. I'm like, ah, okay, I see. I see what you're doing there. Uh, I don't, it's kind of a, I don't want to call it a hit piece on Elvis because it's, it is based on Priscilla, like a Brooke Priscilla wrote, which like that is, this is her experience. This is how she sees that relationship. Uh, and even then it's still not trying to, overly portray Elvis as bad it's still like from Priscilla's point of view she still wants to be sympathetic to him as a human being and as a character in the movie uh but Elvis does come off looking pretty bad here but like I said it's also from my perspective not the full story it's like okay this is Elvis from her point of view but that's why it's a good companion piece to the Elvis movie because you see Elvis from Elvis's point of view or really Colonel Tom Parker's point of view so I think you get a good picture of what was going on with all these people when you watch both movies back to back. It's like, okay, here's this this movie kind of lacks the nuance in some way. The other one lacks some nuance in the other ways. And the truth is somewhere in the middle of all of it. And we'll never know the truth. Um, <clears throat> all right. So uh, one of a Hollywood... Holy fuck. <laughs> I'm sorry, my brain just broke there. One of a uh, Halloween traditions that I recently have uh, made for myself is to watch uh, Sleepy Hollow. Not the Johnny Depp one, as I've some friends have asked me whenever I bring this up. It's The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, the Disney short classic. It's it's like a movie mixed in with like the I think it's called The Adventures of Mr. Toad and Ichabod Crane. It's the two shorts mixed together. That's because these two shorts were going to be full length movies, but they were made around the time of World War Two. So when they were in development, they Disney just mashed them together. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is just fantastic animation more so for its third act when the headless horseman pops out it's just a great little you know it's like fun for the first 30 minutes or 15 minutes of that short of just introducing Ichabod Crane as this weird like lanky you know guy who comes into town and uh him and then like the 
like stereotypical brood is going after the rich, uh, rich guy, rich guy in the village's daughter and they're fighting over her. And then all of a sudden it turns into like a horror short at near the end on Halloween night where they're running away from the headless horseman and just the animation stills of like how they were able to pull off the, the darkness of, or like the brightest colors of the village. And then also how dark and scary can be at night. Uh, it's phenomenal. It's great. I think everybody should watch it on Halloween because it just gets you in the vibes. Uh, it's just one of those classic, you know, Disney things that I think gets lost in translation over the years. And it's uh, phenomenal. I don't think I've seen that one since I was a kid. Uh, so that's another one I should probably give a rewatch to at some point. Next up for me is Silicon Valley Season 3. Things are... Starting to ramp up here. The business is starting to get in a full swing. They're still see they're they're in this weird spot right now because they've they've gotten over enough hurdles to be a legitimate business. But now they're dealing with the people who are giving the money are starting to make more demands of them in terms of actually setting up the business. So now it's okay, how do we actually market this thing and what exactly is our product? We have we have a program and it's a great program, but what are we actually going to do with it? And they want them to make this stupid box thing that basically just sits in a server room and and helps corporations get better processing power and it's, just, it's boring and it is nothing... And Richard wants to put it out to the world, give it access for everybody. Uh, and they're like, well, yeah, we, we can do that eventually, but we gotta we gotta do the box first because that's that's the product. That's what we're that's what we're selling. No, it's not. So it's all about trying to figure out how to market themselves now. But I also like the other side. You see Gavin Belson, the guy who basically he owns Huli, which is basically Google. And he's also sort of crashing and burning because he's trying to make the competing product. He's the guy with, so Silicon Valley, the Pied Piper, they're the ones with a great product, but no money to get it off the ground. Or they don't have the expertise. And Huli is the big multinational corporation with all the money and manpower. But their product is garbage and their press is really bad because of it. So you sort of you see Silicon Valley from multiple perspectives here. You're seeing the young startup juxtaposed with the established brand that's not as innovative as they once were. And it's still continuing to be really good. Nice. Great choice. Very funny show. Um my next on my list is um I just felt like rewatching it. Uh, you'll probably be happy to hear this, but I rewatched Tick Tick Boom. All great right. musical starring Tick Tick Boom. Lately. Yeah, great a uh, great musical starring Andrew Garfield, directed by Lin Manuel Miranda, um, about the uh, life and I almost said death. That's not death, but but the early life before success of Jonathan Larson in '90s New York around the Broadway scene or um, underground Broadway scene. 
it's just a nice, fun sort of tribute to, uh, tribute to Jonathan Larson, but also somewhat tribute to just musicals as a whole. It's a lot of fun. Andrew Garfield does a phenomenal job. Um, I wish he won the Oscar. He was my pick, but there was better performances that year. I have to look back on, but it's it's a great, great musical just about Jonathan Larson's and the music in it is phenomenal. It's just, it's so like feel good, happy musicals at the same time. And then you get the big sad song um, near the end. It's just, I think it's going to go down as one of those classic musicals, like musical movies over like in time. It's just, it's a great, it's a lot of fun. I st- I don't think it gets talked about enough nowadays, but I think yeah. the hype when it did come out, people were happy to see it and, but it's just, it's a great musical. I love it so much. Well, Tick, Tick, Boom definitely spoke to me in a way a lot of stories don't because it, it feel it felt yeah. very much like watching me on screen, just the the writer who's works really hard but hasn't found a hasn't found a break yet, and they incorporate the pe- the lives of people they know into it, and the people see how obsessed they are, and like one of my favorite my favorite scene in the movie is when he gets into a fight with his girlfriend and then she catches him thinking mm-hmm. about how he's going to turn this into a song. Oh my God. Yeah. And I'm like, that's so relatable. <laughs> that would totally be yeah. me right here. I, she I think I've done that. She does a phenomenal performance that. as well. There's a deleted scene where they perform um, like a different version of the green, green dress. And Lin-Manuel Miranda said he cut it in terms of like time. But if you go and watch that scene, it's like two minutes, but it's so well, it's like a choreographed dance and um, singing from Alexandra Ship and Andrew Garfield at the same time. It's so good. I love that song so much. I'm sad that it got cut, but it exists on YouTube. So yeah. great. And the soundtrack. It's great on the soundtrack. So Justin and Alan made me watch Idiocracy because we were talking about it at work. And I hadn't seen it. And they should, well, you, you got to see the movie, man. Because I didn't get uh, some quotes from it. And they're like, look, look, it's not great, but you got to see it just so you understand the quotes. And I saw it and it's scary. It's very, it's very scary to me because it's basically just a documentary of our near future and far future. Now I'll tell you, this movie was pretty brilliant right from the beginning when they describe why the world becomes full of stupid people predominantly and they showed basically there's a juxtaposition between this one couple who's like they're a brilliant couple they have a lot of potential and they spend all this time debating about when's the best time to have a baby and every all the preparation that should be required to have a baby and everything and then by the end of this timeline, they have no baby because they overthought it and shot and overshot it. And then you see this this idiot family who doesn't really think about anything at all. And they're they're getting knocked up left, right and center. And by the end of their timeline, they've got like 30 kids on their family tree. So the movie immediately is like, OK, all, all the smart people overthink it. And so just by process of elimination, all the dumb people who just have babies without thinking they they're the ones who are going to be the majority of the population if exponential uh if it just keeps going like this exponentially 
Uh, so it's it's a great story because it, the most average man in the modern world goes to the future where these where dumb people are just the majority of the population and he's the most brilliant man in the world even though he's the like statistically the most average person on the planet in in modern times it's just it's it's just funny it, it's got really great world building it's it is pretty quotable um it's it's got good production values for for what it was it, it was it wasn't a very high budget movie i don't think it's just it's an interesting premise done pretty well it's it's pretty funny it's very predictive is the thing though i don't think it was i think it came out around 2006 and i don't think it was as funny then as it is now i think it's aged like fine wine because of how our society has changed since it came out it's looking a lot more predictive I haven't even heard of this movie, so that's a surprise one. Um, it's on Disney Plus. Go watch it. Idiocracy. I'll do what I want. Uh, <laughs> uh, next on my list is um, The Crown Season 6. Now, to be fair, I've only watched Part 1, which has dealt with the uh, death of Princess Diana. I haven't watched the second part yet, which is like the main finale. Um, and I think they handle it pretty well. You know, they right. there is some ghost stuff near the end where it's like one-on-one people talking to the ghost of princess diana but it's not like it's dealt with as as seriously as it possibly can um they don't show any like violence like they don't show any gore which i think is pretty respectful um and then the reactions to her death is just heartbreaking i mean it's like, uh, I bet it's like one of those things, this was before, like, we were both born, or before yeah. if we had, like, a subconscious, but <clears throat> it was definitely one of those things that happened in the world, it's like, where were you when you found out Princess Diana died? And it's it's just one of those things that kind of just paused the world and made everybody grieve together, and the way, how they handled it on the show was fantastic. Um, the main actress who played Princess Diana, uh, Diana is phenomenal, she's been giving all sorts of praise and well deserved. She's won a Golden Globe. I'm sure. I'm sure she might win an Emmy tonight. Um, who knows? Um, and her just her embodiment of Princess Diana, uh, Diana is spot on. I think she did a phenomenal job. I still I'm haven't only... seen part two, but I've seen the memes of like all the uh, different actresses who've played um, Queen Elizabeth or like on screen. And people already made like endgame memes about it, like as soon as it came out. So I I will finish it uh, at some point, but I've just been busy with other uh, media. Well, you're more ahead than I am. I'm still a couple years behind on the crown. Just I'm on season five right now. Uh, so I have seen the actress who's playing Diana and she is very good so far. Next up for me is... Wolf 359, seasons three and four. I talked a bit about it on the last leisure list. I powered through the rest of it, and it took some turns. Did not expect certain things going down. Season three and four introduce a whole bunch more cast members. They basically doubled their cast in those seasons, so it was 
really interesting how they managed to weave in with the characters who were already there and become nearly like they'd always been there by the end. They just, they got fleshed out so well those last couple seasons. Some characters by the end, you're like, ah, darn, (laughs) you're like, you're, you're so good in this show. Uh, like Kepler, Jacoby, Maxwell, uh, like everything comes together in the end. It doesn't wrap up all loose ends, but it's still a satisfying conclusion. It's, I just think it's a hilarious show because the first few seasons, the first season specifically, are just this goofy space comedy about just a guy and his crew. You're stuck on a dead-end space station in the middle of nowhere and it's just like pop culture heavy references and just it's just goofy and funny. And by season three and four, they're in a full-on like space action adventure and it just it gets pretty crazy but it's still impressive how they managed to keep most of it grounded it, just when you think ever like crap's going to hit the fan and everything's going to go all out they managed to tone it back down again and keep this, a new status quo like this show is a master at reinventing the status quo in a way that episode to episode things feel pretty stable but on the whole the plot always keeps moving forward. It's so well written, so well voice acted. I this show is right up my alley. It's 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 fun, heady sci-fi with a great dose of pop culture references. The characters are all lovable and and it got a good ending. So what more could you ask for? That's good. Um, next on my list is, uh, Invincible Season 2. Still waiting on Part 2. I'm getting more and more pissed off every day when there's no news of it coming out. Uh, but Season 2, Part 1, is phenomenal. I think it's slowly becoming one of the best superhero medias, you know, of all time. The animation is definitely given a budget boost, you can tell. The voice acting is still phenomenal. You're starting to see... Uh, Mark slowly coming into his own as a superhero, but also dealing with the effects of what happened at the end of season one. Um, uh, Mark's dad, you know, is, you know, dealing with the grief of like what he's done uh, in season one and trying to reconnect with Mark. Um, Basically the first episode or two is just about, you know, the, the aftermath of what happened season one, but then there's still, a lot of fun events that happen, a lot of fun fights that happen in season two to keep uh, things fresh. There's the underwater, like Aquaman fight, I like to call it. And then there's like the, the faux pas, like Gotham city fight as well, which is really fun. Um, It's just great to see how the show still has legs and it's still great. And I think that was one of my fears when it was coming out is okay. You did one of the biggest, finales of all time um in terms of shows and can you still reach that peak of entertainment and to me they still have i mean just with part two alone it's maybe want to buy like the first volume of invincible and read it um it's such great storytelling and please release part two like please release episode five at least like i'm i'm waiting and it's pissing me off like please 
Just let me finish the season. Yeah, Invincible Season 2 is... So far, I'm I'm liking it better than the first season, even. It's... Is that good? And it'll only get better, I'm hoping. So, another comic book on the list for me here. Batman the White Knight by Sean Murphy. And uh, with Matt Hollingsworth. So, the premise for this one is... The Joker basically tricks Batman into beating him up live on camera. And Batman shoves all these drugs down his throat. That it's this experimental new drug that basically makes the Joker sane. So then the Joker with full sanity, he's actually a brilliant dude. So he manages to... Basically, he becomes his own lawyer, lawyers his way out of Arkham, runs for political office, and basically convinces Gotham that Batman's the bad guy. The Gotham police force is corrupt, and like he becomes Gotham's White Knight, which is kind of a you know Batman's the Dark Knight, but he's the White Knight because he's you know white face, <laughs> the clown makeup. Um, so, but he actually is a good guy, is the thing. He's not just faking it. He actually did get mentally cured. And Batman in this universe is actually pretty unhinged and sort of lost his way. And even Gordon's like, dude, you're going too far, man. And even the Joker's making more sense than you lately, man. Come on. And there's two Harley Quinns, which is interesting. It's funny because the Joker was so bad before he got redeemed, he didn't even realize the original Harley left and another girl who looked exactly like her was just hanging around with being his girlfriend. So the original Harley's like, oh, this is the this is the Mr. J I fell in love with. This is the you I knew you always could be deep down. And the other Harley is like, no, I liked I liked the toxic Joker better. Go go back to being evil. So then the Harley Quinns start having a rivalry as well. It's very, it's a really interesting story. Uh, switches up the mythology in a pretty unique way. Uh, they have really good takes on the Bat family as well. Mostly just Batgirl and Nightwing. The other ones aren't really in it though there is a question of did the joker kill jason todd we don't really know he doesn't even really remember what he did batman doesn't know what he did so there there is a question about that there yeah so that's the white knight sounds like a fun comic book it's it's an elseworld yeah. sort of thing it's a it always shocks me like the type of stories they can do with Batman still after like almost 80, what, 80 years of him being yeah. around? Yeah. It's wild. Um, yeah, comics are phenomenal. Uh, next on my list is Elvis. I did a rewatch recently um, just because I wanted to I wanted to give it like not another chance because I remember when I watched it the first time I had fun with it but I had critiques of the directing style um, but then when I rewatched it I still had a blast. Um yeah, and it just reminded me how tough the lead actor race was between Austin Butler and Brendan Fraser. Because, mm -hmm. in my opinion, they both still deserve it. Like, they both put on probably their best performance ever. I mean, I don't know how Austin Butler will top himself. 
And it just sucks that they couldn't have been two winners. It would have been great if they were yeah. like, hey, you both win. That would have been funny. Just like for the first time ever. We can't um, decide. Yeah. But hey, Brendan Fraser also did phenomenal. He was my pick for um, last year. But man, Austin Butler really does just... Again, I'll say the same thing I did when I did a review of this movie is that I never saw him as Austin Butler playing Elvis. I only saw Elvis. Like Which that's the biggest... Theme. Yeah, like it's insane how much time and research he did for this role and it really shows and elvis is such a strange one too because it's not like yeah it's the most mimicked like yeah there's a lot of actors that play celebrities but elvis is one of the most often personated people ever exactly so so how do you not do an elvis impersonation but actually manage to feel like elvis without us being like oh that's just an elvis impression yeah. It was a tight um, rope to balance. Incre- if anybody else had played Elvis, this movie would be like a shit show. I think it would have been so much worse, but Austin Butler did a phenomenal job. People crap on Tom Hanks' performance, but also they don't realize how just weird Tom Parker was. So I think Tom Hanks nailed it. Um, he's really gotten, like people have criticized his acting more and more in his like later work, like as he's gotten older, but he's never That's like... Weird. He's never gotten worse. Like, I I can't say there's a Tom Hanks performance where he's bad. I really can't. There's, I can't think of one because he is one of the greats. But anyway, I, it's, I just think it's just haters being haters. But yeah, that was yeah. my pick. Not pick. That was my next on my list. I don't know. I'm losing it. Yeah. So this next one here is Fantastic Four by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. One of the all-time classics of comic book history. And I is you see, I'm reading all these out of order, right? Because this is this is just a this is a book my uncle got me for Christmas a, a while back. But uh, so it's volume seven, nowhere near the beginning. But yeah, I think it lives up to the hype. Stanley and Jack Kirby are one of the greatest duos in comic book history, and their fantastic forerun is what put Marvel Comics on the map. Marvel was, yeah, they had a couple random characters here and there, but the Fantastic Four was Marvel's answer to the Justice League team-up book at DC. That's that's what started the whole brand, basically, and it was one of the premier books of the 1960s. Uh, and it's, I've read a lot of Silver Age books, and this is very well done. The family dynamic is incredibly well-written. They feel a lot more real as people compared to a lot of the square-jawed 1960s heroes who their stories were usually a lot more simplistic. This is, it, it uses, every issue is pretty standalone. They fight a new bad guy and it's usually super inventive, but they're also pretty serialized too in a way I'm not used to from comics in this era. It, so that was different to see as well um a semi funny note because i'm reading these out of order i thought they were just being extra sexist to sue for absolutely no reason and it wasn't until i got way late in the book i realized they're like actively keeping her out of battles because she's pregnant i'm like oh okay i thought you were just keeping her out of battles because she's a girl and you're being sexist although i'm i'm freaked 
confident that was a big part of it too. But I, I, I was happy to see that later on, I'm like, okay, at least they have a reason that they were kind of being this way, even though I didn't get it. Like, okay, they're protecting the baby. Don't send your wife into life or death battles all the time. So it's I mean, dated. There's an argument where she's like the most powerful person on that team. So kind of need her help from time to time. <laughs> she makes like force fields and goes invisible. She's, she's yeah. pretty powerful. Pretty powerful. Yeah. I think the thing, the you thing think? is pretty powerful too. The thing was like, the thing goes through this whole arc where he, uh, the fantastic four has to fight him. And that goes pretty badly for the rest of them. Stanley loved his hero on hero scenes. Right. You so think many if, Silver Age Marvel is heroes fighting heroes. Do you think, I know because it's a force field and she can breathe inside it, but do you think if, like, Sue Storm placed, like, a force field around someone's head, she could, like, cut off the oxygen and just, like, yes. suffocate them? Probably. Yeah. Very, yeah. There was also a lot that. more of the Inhumans in this book than I expected. I never knew anything about the Inhumans, but this is my Gross. first exposure to them. <laughs> so that was that was pretty cool. It's introducing me to sides of Marvel lore I don't really know about. Sorry, the only Inhumans I know about is the really bad, uh, like, straight-to-cable television show. Yeah. Um. <laughs> they also had characters like Adam Warlock, Ronan the Accuser. They were fighting some... Pretty cool. Ah, uh, yes. Back when Marvel had all the rights. Yeah. To all their own properties. You know, this, it's, all, it's so funny when it's like you talk about uh, MCU stuff where it's like, oh, did you like Civil War? Did you like Endgame? Or like you like the big name stories? Like, yeah, but Civil War is better than the comics because they had Fantastic Four, you know, the X-Men's like, well, no shit. But that's not how like movie rights work. <laughs> like, you know what did I mean? It's like, like the movie was the question. Yeah, I, I wasn't like, did it live up to, was it as good as Civil War in the comics? Because we all know, no, it's not. Because Civil War with Fantastic Four and X-Men live action would have been phenomenal. But guess what? Those other two, like, movies did not do well. And I'm sure if they did do well, they would have probably been implemented. And they all, they all weren't owned by the same company. So it's just, it's stuff like that with, like, the comic book purist people. Like, I get it. I get it. I understand, but shut up. It's a different these movies have These movies have never been one-to-one adaptations. Exactly. They've always changed things. If anything, they're closer to the source material now in many ways than they've ever been. It just sucks that they're yeah, getting worse. because they're sort of like they, coinciding with like just audience retention where I think comics are like nowadays are trying to emulate each other with the movies at the same time because they don't want like too big a shift in uh it's Ouroboros it's the snake like eating its own tail and it's all getting worse yeah the comics are aping off of bad movies which are making the comics which they're adapting from the comics and <sighs> brain brain yeah <laughs> it's just like short circuits uh, next on my list is a fun little little uh, little musical that was released on YouTube but was filmed in uh, Los Angeles. It was Nerdy Prudes Must Die. It is a Star Kids production okay. musical. It's just basically, it's just a, like a comedy musical. It's the same production company that did like a very Harry Potter musical or uh, they did like an Aladdin parody as well. Um, it's just a fun like 
high like high school parody of you know the jock bullying everybody and and all the nerds gain up together to take on revenge but then it turns into a slasher uh, really fun musical surprisingly emotional parts at the same time but the music surprisingly is just really good for musicals i mean there's really catchy songs there's whole compilations on youtube it's like my favorite uh nerdy prudes must die songs in order there's like 50 of them that i've run across in my recommendation fun little musical for anybody to check out um main not takeaway but like angela from the smosh cast is in it uh she plays um uh, Grace Chastity, who's like this super uh, religious figure who like doesn't even hold hands in school. It, it She plays it so phenomenal. Some of her lines are the most iconic lines in the in in the musical. It's it's a really real fun, fun time. Yeah. See, uh, I, I decided to watch Rush Hour because I'd never seen that. It's really fun. And. Hmm. <laughs> see the thing is i don't know if this was considered a, a a quote unquote good action movie when it came out in the late 90s but it's really good by today's standards i watched some of the action in this and i'm like today's action movies are amateurish <laughs> the stuff jackie chan was able to pull off in this movie was insane he made his stunts both well, don't compare Jackie Chan and, to like every other. <laughs> He's like the well, Titan. Well, why, sh- why shouldn't I? <laughs> Even the scenes without Jackie Chan were better shot than today. They they're shot better. They look better. Yeah. Oh, what do you know? Wide shots. You can actually see stuff happening, and it's impressive. It's in, you can see it, and it looks good too. But the Jackie Chan stuff, especially, he makes such a art form out of. He blends physical comedy and badass action in a way I've never really seen done before. He's just an expert at his craft. He makes the action of Rush Hour awesome. But he's also got great chemistry with Chris Tucker. Who, they're they're so funny together. It's this buddy cop dynamic is the heart of the movie. The plot is, yeah, whatever. I mean, we've seen stuff like this before. But it's not about the plot. Yeah, it's the charisma of its cast. It's the really cool action. And I'll follow up with the sequels because I'm actually, I'm interested. Rush Hour is solid. Yeah, uh, I haven't seen any of those movies, uh, surprisingly. Um, I've seen like clips of like Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan. And I know they're still like good friends to this day, which is awesome. Which they're working on a rush hour for. Are they really good? So I hear. I think. Oh, what was it? I remember well, it's been seeing in development for like ten years. I mean, yeah. It's one of those. I remember seeing like a commercial for like I think they were like doing a remake of Rush Hour, like a TV version, or I think it was they Lethal did do Weapon. A TV show. They did, yeah. And my first thought was just like, why? Like the last one came out in like late two thousands. Like there's no need for this shit. But yeah. Anyway, uh, next up on my list is Red Dead Redemption Two. Right. Finally bit the bullet and uh, bought this game. Um, I'm nowhere close to even like completing it, but it, just because of work and all that, um, you're cutting to my playtime now. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's there's so much 
God, they like they built so much into this game. It's almost like kind of annoying. Like you, so you have to like make sure forget the story, but you have to make sure like your guy looks clean. There's like hair pomade that you put in. You got to make sure he sleeps or he'll like slowly die off. You got to feed yourself. You have to <clears throat> make sure your horse is clean or it won't feel good. You'll start to lose like bonding points or whatever. You got to make sure your guns are clean. Like there's so much maintenance you would do that it feels too real as a video game. But I also just like, I'm so impressed that they did that. Um, but to the story, it's just about this, uh, guy, Arthur Morgan, who was in this gang of, um, cowboys who are just at the tail end of like the cowboy era in America, um, of like the old, uh, old West and sort of it's getting more civilized as they're going. And you're just in this gang That's also kind of like a family. It's not like fast and furious. Um, <laughs> But they, they all just kind of work together to, you know, rob, cheat the way through life because that's their way of life. That's all they've known. Um, and uh, Arthur Morgan is so far is a fantastic protagonist because you do play as him and there's quite a bit of choices that you can make that differ the story a little bit. And he has his own moral code, but he's not afraid to, you know, to beat up somebody or shoot someone. Um, it, yeah, it's basically what everybody says. It's GTA, but in the Old West. It's fun, great, like, cowboy simulator. It's a lot of fun. There's so much you can do in terms of, like, hunting or catching, you know, wild horses and taming them. It's just one of those games where it's like, okay, I'm paying, and well, in Canada now, it's like I'm paying $80 for a full game or sometimes 90 but it's worth the price now. I didn't pay $80 for this game. I paid, like, what, $24.99 when it was on sale? Um, it's a good sale. I would have probably paid full price, but... Yeah, great game. Um, I'll probably finish it in, fuck, a year because it's one of those games that's just gigantic because I'm also hopping between this game and uh, another game at the mo uh, same time. So I'll let you know when uh, when I do finish it. All right. So I think I talked about my big week of movies on the last couple episodes of Close Up. You mentioned it. Six movies in seven days. This was one of them. Well, actually, it's the one that kicked it off for me. Godzilla minus one. Which, hey, we got a Godzilla movie from Japan. Cool. I've really only ever seen the American ones. I, I don't think I've ever seen the original Godzilla ones uh, from from Japan. Or even the other, like, I okay, I've seen the Matthew Broderick one from the 90s. I've seen... Why? The I don't know. You watch, don't you watch movies as a kid? Like just random movies that you like. Who cares? Like we're in it from Blockbuster. Just cause. Right, fair. Whatever. Yeah. So I saw that one. I, as a it, kid. I did watch Pan. <laughs> That's yeah, a random whatever. one. <laughs> so yeah, I watched that one as a kid. I've seen the 2014 one. I don't remember if I've seen King of the Monsters. I think I've seen that one as well. And I saw. Godzilla I've only seen the 2014 Kong. one. So I've seen three or four and then this one and it's the best by far but it's also way better than all those other movies it's not just the best Godzilla movie I've seen it's far and away better than the American ones I've seen and I think what's the best thing about it is that it's not even it doesn't it works as a non-Godzilla movie I care about the characters so much it's just it's a story about rebuilding post-war Japan 
and a community coming together to build up their country in a way only they can. They can't rely on their government to help them. They can't rely on other countries. It's Japan's in a state of crisis and its people need to help themselves. And they also have to get their national spirit back after it gets crushed in the wake of World War II because they feel their government took advantage of them. They feel they went to go fight and die in a war that they didn't really want or kind of got suckered into through nationalistic propaganda. And this is sort of their redemption in their eyes. Godzilla is just the thing that they rally against. That That's not... It's Godzilla himself doesn't really matter so much as he's just the thing everybody's uniting to fight. The, the real meat of the movie is about this guy finding redemption because he, uh, he, he cowered it out of being a suicide pilot and dishonored himself. And now he's got to find his own redemption and start moving forward from his PTSD in the war. Is he, is it more valuable for him to live his life or lay it down for his country? That's the thing he's, he's grappling with in his mind. Like, well, my purpose for my country was to die and I didn't do that. So what am I alive for really? And it's, it's got great special effects, production values. The actors are all really good too. The writing is really good and just a great movie all around. Forget the fact that it's a, a monster movie, but I got a lot of Jaws vibes from it. A lot of guys on boats hunting the monster in the sea. Yeah, I hear, I've heard uh, pretty good things about it. Um, definitely something I should check out later on. <clears throat> um, next on my list is Baldur's Gate 3. The video game uh, winner of the year. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic game. I've, everything you've heard about it is all correct. I mean, the characters in it are great. The voice acting is phenomenal. The different choices you can make. The all of it. It's just basically a D and D simulator. A lot of fun. The story is actually pretty good. Um, you know, you start off as the character you want to create or one of the pre-made characters and you're stuck on this, um, mind flare ship and you get a tadpole stuck in your eye and then you slowly recruit other people to your camp to get rid of the tadpoles. Um, if, if I come to think of it, it's like kind of like not a safe, but almost like, okay, what's a, like a, a basic enemy we can take on in like the D and D universe, but also create our own vibe towards it as well, or our own storylines and I think they do a phenomenal job uh the gameplay I personally am just bad at so I won't even say like it's it's not bad at all it's just uh it's challenging which is good which is what you want and um once you pay, pay full price for it that's it no paid DLC they'll actually give you free updates as well which is great um no add-ons whatsoever everything you get from it you paid for up front the character creation is some of the best that I've ever seen. Um, it's it's a phenomenal game, and I think everybody should try it out if you have like a week off work, because like you're not going to be able to nail this out in two hour sessions for like 
if you do that every day, it might take you years. I don't know because <laughs> it's taking me years just to beat it. I haven't beaten it yet. I think All I'm right, near so the do, end of Act Two. So do the math with me now. If it takes me ten years to get to the game in the first place, then how long will it take? It you just to beat don't. It? Just don't even try because I want you to play God of War first. I'll um, get back to you in <laughs> fifteen years then. <laughs> on our yeah. leisure list of 2039. Mm-hmm. I think people should just pay uh, for this game just so they can do the custom- the character customization because it's just so much fun to do. It's a mini game on yeah. its own. It really is. I think they released a uh, release stat. It was like 100 million hours on character creation menu or something oh. like that from all the players. It's, it's pretty funny. So my next one for my big week of movies was Aquaman 2 because I'm a DC nerd. Obviously, I've got a whole pile of DC comics next to me. And it's the last movie of the DCU. I went wearing my super faded out Superman t-shirt that I've worn for, I think, every DC movie in theaters since Batman v Superman or uh, maybe Suicide Squad. Since whenever I got that shirt around 2016, I've worn it for every DC movie since then. So I'm I'm wearing it right to the end, Aquaman 2. Um, Aquaman 2 isn't good, but it's fun. The production values are really cool. The Atlantis and all the, and the, um, the bad guys layers and like, there's a lot of, it's very pretty looking. The action is, I'm not invested in it, but it's still, okay, sure, you're doing some kind of unique things here. I don't feel like I've seen this a million times before, so that's that's cool. Uh, they used too much CGI when they could have done practical stuff, even with the hand-to-hand combat. I'm like, well, why, why didn't you just have Jason Momoa and, um, I don't remember his name, the guy who played Black Mana. Um, why didn't you just have them the candy man yeah um patrick wilson and jason momoa's chemistry is the is the heart of this movie they're when they finally get together half an hour in it's their banter their their brotherly relationship that's what the movie's really about uh that that saves it for me uh the problem is the movie didn't really know what it wanted to be is it like is it a movie about the global global warming pollution crisis is it about brothers trying to forge a relationship is it about the responsibilities of being a king and navigating politics it doesn't have any kind of focus but it's just kind of dumb fun that's good enough yeah i oops yeah i haven't even uh i haven't even seen the first one so uh, <laughs> had first no desire good. really to see the second one. Yeah, I've heard decent things about the first one. Um, okay, uh, next on my list is actually three movies. It is the Planet of the Apes trilogy, the uh, Andy Circus one. Um, phenomenal trilogy. I just started watching Rise, and I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna watch the next two back to back. Um, both Rise, Dawn, and War are just just beautiful looking movies. I mean, the CGI is top notch. What a digital you did it again. Um, shocking. They never won an Oscar for it. 
it's criminal that Andy Serkis was never even nominated for Best Performing for Caesar because the Oscars suck. I'm just going to say it. Um, <laughs> the fact that they took like a dying franchise and just rebooted it into people who cared about the franchise but had a vision for it in a modern light is the way they did it is phenomenal. The only gripe I will, or not gripe, but the new criticism I have of it is after watching it and taking off my rose-colored glasses, I found James Franco's acting really flat. I don't, I, like, I don't know what it is, just re-watching it, his, like, reactions to certain moments in, like, scenes, are, like, some of them are good, but a lot of it is just, like, just flat, like, not like, almost emotionless, but, yeah, I just don't know what it, I just didn't buy him as that character, but again, he wasn't the focus, and he really doesn't matter because he's only in the first one. Um, but yeah, Andy Serkis, this is his magnum opus series. The fourth movie is supposed to come out sometime this year. Um, that's going to be interesting. We'll definitely do a review on that. Um, yep. It's going to be interesting to see like a different lead in the in the Planet of the Apes modern era. Phenomenal trilogy. The villains in it are great. Koba is one of the best cinematic villains of all time. And Dawn. Dawn's one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, just aesthetically, it's beautiful. Um, War is pretty decent. Um, War. I gave when I gave War a second chance. Watching this, I understood like the beauty of it, where it just kind of subverts your expectations of like what type of war they're talking about. They're more so just talking about like the fight to save humanity or like what is humanity at this point. And Woody Harrelson does a fin phenomenal job. Um, it is kind of a revenge quest type movie, but it's a better revenge quest than The Last of Us Part Two. Um, uh, it's just a great trilogy. Everybody should watch it. It's probably, if, if it wasn't for like the original trilogy for Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, it'd probably be the best trilogy of all time. Or if someone says it is the best, I wouldn't say no. Well, it's certainly up there. It's it's one of the most impressive for making the motion capture ape lead so sympathetic the entire three movies. And the effects are probably the best all around I've seen in a franchise. They really make everybody look super realistic. It's insane. Uh, in a way that other franchises just don't bother with or can't replicate just the special effects in that movie are superb what do you mean modok looks so real <laughs> my next one here is ferrari uh if i had a nickel every time adam driver played italian guys i'd have two nickels uh ferrari is like Aquaman 2, my big problem with Ferrari is its lack of focus. Like, okay, is it about him trying to win the race? Is it about him and his tense relationship with his wife? Is it about him and his illegitimate son, who he doesn't really know whether he should name a Ferrari or not, make him legitimize him more? Um... It's kind of about all three of those things, but it doesn't really know where... It doesn't really focus on any one in particular. So to me, I just see it as, okay, I guess this is just a bad year for Enzo Ferrari. 
where a lot of things are going wrong for him and he's got to balance his work-life relationships as best he can or lose his whole legacy. I kind of see what they were going for. The actors are all really good in it. Uh, the best one was Penelope Cruz as Laura. She steals every scene she's in. Uh, the rest is, it's okay. The race is really good at the end. I just, just meh on it overall. Yeah. Just like a weird chapter in his life where like bad shit happened, but not that bad. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, some, it got pretty bad towards the end for him, but I, I respect that they didn't do a from your birth to your death kind of biopic. They just, they focused in on a, on a specific year for him, which, okay, sure. I'll take that. But their focus within that year was lacking for me. Ah, gotcha. It wasn't really about one thing. There was no driving right. goal, so it just felt meandering. Mm. Okay, gotcha. we're just going to show him here with his mistress <laughs> and here here with his wife and here doing some racing stuff. It never really felt urgent. Oh, no, a rich guy has a mistress. Oh, shocking. Crazy. Yeah. Anyway, uh, next on my list is God of War Ragnarok Valhalla DLC. Uh, this was a surprise edition late last year, um, free DLC, which is great. Thank you, Santa Monica. And it is, it was, uh, it's their version of a roguelike roguelike. I think that's what's called like that type Souls of game like? where it's basically, it's like, yeah, thank you that. So it's like, uh, you, it's just, it's like you go into this room and you fight a bunch of enemies and then you get more, you get like more gear or whatever and then you go into another room and you fight more enemies it's that type of game right and then if you die you restart all your stats restart or stuff like that um so god of war's take on that is pretty unique but it also adds on to the story of the end of ragnarok and it kind of dwells on the past of kratos not just in uh ragnarok but more so in the greek trilogy and then bring up a lot of you get to fight enemies from the Greek trilogy, um, some basic enemies and some, not bosses, but just some like harder bosses, or not bosses, uh, harder enemies in the Greek trilogy. It's really cool. Just a great like little throwback as well. And then just sort of, it's just a nice little like dessert to have the add-on for Ragnarok. Um, and just kind of brings Kratos even more like more developed into who he is of fully accepting who he was in the past and um, accepting what he did was, you know, it was wrong, but it's what he believed had to be done. And he's now accepted that and fully become the God he was meant to be. And this almost made my top 10 list of media from last year, but I think just because it was a DLC that you needed to, play basically all the other games to fully appreciate it kind of didn't make my list at the same time but i also forgot to put on my honorable mention so that's my bad but it's still phenomenal it's great i was a little cheesed when because i did platinum ragnarok and then new uh trophies popped up so i was like well now i have to do those trophies but it's back to 100 percent now so everything's good great dlc loved it um everybody after playing ragnarok should play the dlc because it, uh, especially if you played the Greek trilogy, because it's it's uh, basically a love letter to that, which is also spawned rumors that they're doing a remaster or a remake of the Greek trilogy, so can't wait for that. 
if they ever do it, because I don't want to pay 12 bucks a month just to play the, <laughs> the old mm-hmm. games. Yeah. Uh, so in my week of movies, I also saw Wonka. That's what capped out my week. I, I had, I didn't really have any expectations going into this one. I, yeah, I saw Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory as a kid. Sure, I, I remember it well enough. Sure, let's go see this one. Uh, another stealth musical. They didn't market it as a musical. That's been happening a lot lately. It happened to me multiple times. It happened with Wonka, The Color Purple, Mean Girls is also going to be a musical, but none of them were marketed that way. I don't know why that's happening. Might be worth discussing at some There's point. a clip of an audience reaction to like the first song in Mean Girls and everybody just groans because they didn't know it was a musical. Yeah. It's, just, it's like, it's a really funny reaction to it. But it's also like, why didn't you market it as a musical? It's like, it's crazy. Because and like, I saw, that I saw a really, yeah. I had a really dumb comment. I saw a really dumb comment where it was like, well, there's a musical note in the Mean Girls poster. I'm like, okay, buddy. You're stretching. <laughs> You're yes, stretching that's a, a bit. major like, indicator. It's what's too happening. subtle. <laughs> anyway, about Wonka, Timothy Chalamet is a very charismatic lead in in this. I, I mean, you can kind of see what, how he'd become the Gene Wilder version, but he's just he's kind of doing his own thing here. He's just this super optimistic guy who makes chocolate, brings joy to people, and he had this pretty heartfelt story about how his mother um he always used to make chocolate with his mother and he just wanted to make a chocolate shop and in her memory to spread his chocolate to the world and share it with people like he used to share chocolate with her and but like this chocolate conglomerate is trying to they're like monopolizing chocolate in the city, basically, and they they won't let this newcomer on the block. Uh, and then he basically ends up as an endangered servant by accident by staying at a hotel and signing some bad paperwork, and he's got to work off his wages. Uh, and then he meets all these other people who start sort of helping him scheme around uh, the chocolate conglomerate. Uh, basically, I saw this movie as like Breaking Bad, with like a family-friendly Breaking Bad. It's it's basically okay. about this guy who who sells chocolate uh that does weird things to you. It makes you float in the air, makes you feel super good and crazy. And there's there's scenes of him running away from the cops a lot because like the cops are in on this monopoly. They're getting paid off to hunt down Willy Wonka, so he's got to run away from the cops, sell his goods, get rich, become a legitimate business. In the end, is the goal. Uh. I just want that on a poster for Wonka, just in quotes, Breaking Bad for kids. <laughs> Basically, that's what it, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't overtly do anything, but it's family friendly Breaking Bad, the musical. Mom, uh, what's Breaking Bad? Don't, and don't I think it's that. so much more fun when you look at it that way, but it is just a really good family movie. I really like the music in it too. Made me feel some stuff. Just light. Nice entertainment, which that's good every once in a while. It's kind of like chocolate. It's not very nourishing or substantive, but it's it feels good while you're eating it. 
I love chocolate. It's tasty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one of those weird ones where it's like, I didn't care that they were making it. So I didn't, I have no drive to go see it, but you know, one day, one yeah. day I'll probably see it. Uh, next to my list, it was going to be a surprise, but then the top 10 list came out and I had to make my list. Uh, I saw Barbie for the first time. Yeah. We saying it's praise about it in uh, two episodes ago. Phenomenal. Um, I still think it's great. I believe, what was it, last night? Yeah, I think it was last night. I'm Just Ken just won for a Critics' Choice Award for Best Song. So that's cool. Nice. Um, there's a meme of Ryan Gosling looking confused that they won, but I think he was just kind of playing it for the camera. It's mm -hmm. really funny. Um, and uh, Barbie won Best Comedy. So there's that. Um, do you think, this is kind of going off topic, but do you think the Oscars should do like two different Best Picture Categories like one's drama, one's musical and comedy. Or is I might that like argue too that. much? I might argue that, but I'd also argue they play by their own rules first. Yeah. They have 10 slots open for Best Picture nominees and they never even fill them. Yeah. They, and when they do yeah. fill them, it's like the weirdest movies of the year. Yeah. So before they start splitting into two categories, fill the one you've already got. Yeah. It's weird because, like, what, Don't Look Up was a Best Picture nominee that one year? And it's like, it's clearly not. <laughs> right. it's, it's, it was an all right movie, but, like, not, like, you know, Best Picture worthy, my opinion. More but Oscar bashing to come in this award season. I think, build up. I, I think it'd be interesting if they'd split the category down the middle, but also you would have to do, it'd make the show, like, ten times longer as well, I feel like. They would have to cut an award here or there. Don't undercut oh. the Golden Globes even worse. That's their thing. Yeah. Yeah, they undercut themselves by hiring Joe Coy. Anyway, uh, Barbie was, uh, yeah, it's a great movie. Um, I think the comedy is stellar. The directing was great. Greta Gerwig is phenomenal. Uh, I'm probably going to watch Little Women soon because I need to complete my Greta Gerwig trilogy because Little I've seen Lady Bird. Yeah, I've seen Lady Bird and now I've seen Barbie. Now I have to see Little Women. And I've got to um, see Lady I feel Bird. Like yeah, I think I'm like I'm gonna cry, because um, I know what happens in Little Women. It's like a famous book, but um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, just great, great move around, great, just fun time to watch. Tackles the patriarchy and also the matriarch at the same time, and then tells the story of hey, if we work together and not try to bash one another, maybe we can create like an actual equal society. Comedy, the comedy, and it's great. Political messages sometimes a little over stuff, but you know, what political messages in movies aren't, right? Like there's, you know, some that are really subtle and there's some that are like oversaturated. This one is not oversaturated or subtle, but it's not trying to be. It's playing to a certain... Did anyone legitimately think the Barbie movie was going to be apolitical? Or subtle? No. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a fantastic movie. Um, I hope it wins more awards than it is uh, right now. Um, the race for best picture is probably going to be Oppenheimer, which is my pick as well. But, you know, the close second is Barbie. I mean, which is kind of funny if you think about it, like two movies that came out at the same day that were the most successful this year. Yeah. And they're one, they're number one and two for best picture. It's like, that's, that's crazy. That's, you don't really What's see crazy that to me is that the Barbenheimer thing was actually there. They were both good. It's yeah. It wasn't just a, okay. One's gonna be forgotten. Yeah, 
crazy. Yeah. Like uh, when Dark Knight and Mamma Mia came out. Well, Mamma Mia wasn't forgotten, but was not nearly as successful as the Dark Knight. No. Although I'm, I'm in the yeah. camp that says Mamma Mia 2 is far superior to the first in basically every it's, way. Uh, movie's fine. The music in like is great. First, I did I not just, like the first Mamma Mia, but the Mamma yeah, Mia 2 was a lot better. Whatever. Uh, oh, who's so, in uh, Mamma Mia 2? Isn't that, oh, Lily that James. actress, she's in something. Yeah, 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 yeah. She's in a lot of stuff. I forgot that yeah. was her. She's great. Yeah, she was incredible in that. Oh, they had uh, Amanda Seyfried and Meryl Streep had like a reunion on the Golden Globes carpet. It was really cute. Oh. Yeah. My next one here is the Doctor Who specials uh, starring David Tennant and Catherine Tate which was incredible to see them back together. I didn't grow up with Doctor Who when they were on originally. I didn't really get into Doctor Who until somewhere in the middle of the Matt Smith era. And even then, I was playing catch-up the whole time. I, I didn't even get watching Doctor Who live till Jodie Whittaker. That's how far back I was for so long. Um, it was a weird decade. <laughs> Uh, trying to get into that fandom. But anyway, so Catherine Tate and David Tennant, um, fantastic chemistry still, just as good as they were back in 2008. Uh, I love Wild Blue Yonder. That was a great sci-fi adventure. Just the two, like that was, the first one was them kind of getting back together and reestablishing the dynamic. The third one was, okay, now we got to set up Shutigatwa as the next Doctor uh, with his adventures, but the middle one was just mostly what I wanted to see, which was just David Tennant and Catherine Tate going on one last hurrah together, just being really great together and bantering, and the the sci-fi concept's pretty cool as well. Uh, it was a good three specials. Uh, I also watched Judy Gatwa's first episode as well, uh, The Church on Ruby Road, and that was a really good introduction to him, too. He really warmed on me as that one went on. Uh, I was a little hesitant with him at first, but I'm I'm sold on him now. Uh, there was that random musical bit in the middle, which, okay, good. This is what I like from Doctor Who, just weird. Weird, but good. Yeah. So I'm excited for season 14. He was also in Barbie. Or, yeah, yes, he was. Mm -hmm. Which is funny because his, it's so funny because his Ken was paired up with the Barbie, uh, Emma Mackey, who they're both in sex education, which is kind of funny. It's like one of those, like, I don't know. In jokes. Like, in jokes, yeah. If you fans of those, uh, that show, which I haven't watched, but uh, all the seasons are out. And I think we're, we're just out of the, uh, <laughs> like, the that era of like watching teen dramas, I guess. Well, also yeah, like the teen drama last teen, like live action teen drama, like high school thing I watched was like 13 reasons why. And it left a bad taste in my mouth. So yeah. not saying that sex education is on the same level of like drama as that, but uh, I should give it a chance. I've seen clips and they're pretty funny. I've heard good things. I just haven't really been inclined to watch it is all. Mm -hmm. Well, over the Christmas break, um, my brother put on South Park joining the Pandaverse. Oh, it's just yeah. basically a South Park roast session of Kathleen Kennedy and the Disney company and how much they have pandered to a certain niche audience or they're trying to pander to like uber feminists or something like that. And it's just a complete roast session of her. And it's, it's really, it's, 
it's bad. Like, in the, like not bad in the sense of like it's bad comedy. It's just like they pull no punches with her. It's it's crazy. And funny enough, trying to when we were watching it, my parents were like in the kitchen uh, and hearing this and like, so who's Kathleen Kennedy? And I had to explain the whole situation with her and how like how producers try to get mixed involved. And and then oh, yeah. I think my mom made a comment. It was like, but aren't they like sometimes credited for like making good movies? And I'm like, yes, but it's just because she pays for them. <laughs> like just trying to explain the whole like how the industry works is was interesting. Um, I think there are plenty of yeah. good producers. Don't get me wrong. I think producing is a is a very important job, and the best ones mm-hmm. make for good movies. Because yes, oops, creative people don't always get it right. Sometimes you need an objective yeah. business mind to say, okay, but this is actually how to sell the movie. You're getting a little off right. base here. That's a perfectly reasonable job. I just mm-hmm. don't think Kathleen Kennedy's particularly good at her job. Is yeah. the problem. There's plenty of good producers out there. Yeah, they roast the crap out of her, and they also roast uh, multiverses at the same time as well. And um, yeah, it's it's a fun little South Park special. If anybody likes South Park, it's uh, nice to. Uh, it's it was a nice laugh over the holiday break. Apparently, Kathleen Kennedy is has seen it, and she's fierce about it, which. I think that's exactly the reaction they were going for. So <laughs> I don't think she got the message. I mean, but, when you uh, call somebody yeah. out by name like that, that's mm-hmm. pretty ballsy. Yeah. Next up here is the Frasier reboot. I, this is just one. Uh, I watched this one with my family uh, and we were all really into it. It's basically TV comfort food. I figure it's done in the style of old sitcoms. It's in front of a live studio audience. It's a multi-cam sitcom done on sets. It just it feels classic in all the best ways. They don't make sitcoms like this anymore, and I miss this style. And Kelsey Grammer is exceptional. Like, the rest of the cast is... They're, they're good, but he's far and away the best performer on, on that cast. Uh, the Fraser Crane character is really incredible to me because he's been playing Fraser Crane since the mid eighties. So he's, he's nearly on 40 years as this character on and off. And it's just amazing to see the kind of longevity that he's brought to it. Just as a mind you, he didn't even show up as like a major supporting character. He showed up as Diane's boyfriend on cheers who it was just supposed to be a, a just a one-off boyfriend like he's always in sitcoms and then he stuck around and he's still playing him long after every other actor on these shows stopped play- he got a 10-year spin-off and now he's on another spin-off and he's still good he's still funny uh the writing's pretty solid on the whole i think it's it's pretty quick-witted stuff um really clever jokes i laugh a lot um it's it's smart humor. I, I I enjoy it. It's it's not the best sitcom I've seen in a long time, but it's I I just I enjoy it for for what it is. Like I said, TV TV comfort food for me, but like a little more brainy. It's it's a cut above. Yeah, good choice. Um, and I was wondering how you would uh how would you would feel about that? Um, because I know you've seen like. 
Frasier before. And, uh, I'm not, I haven't watched all of Frasier, mind you. I haven't no. watched all of Frasier or all of Cheers, but I've seen enough of it that I, I know, I know the characters. I know, I know right. what's, I know the story. Uh, next on my list is Oppenheimer. Yeah. Um, next. <laughs> I think we talked about this movie to death and yeah, we're, we kinda, we're almost getting on the two hour mark. So we'll, yeah, we'll, gotta just, we'll start move on. Moving. <laughs> yeah. So next up I have here, uh, justice league galaxy of terrors by Simon Spurrier, Jeff Loveness and, uh, Aaron Lapercetti, Robson Roca, Matt Ryan, Daniel Enriquez. Uh, so this one, the justice league goes to an alien planet, saves their civilization, takes out their tyrannical leaders and then everyone's like okay but now what are you going to be our leaders and the justice league are like ooh uh we don't really we don't really know how to deal with this and wonder woman's like uh we don't deal with this like well actually we kind of have to deal with this now because we just took out their leaders without really thinking about it and now we've let these people these vulnerable people who basically were in the midst of a civil war without any leadership. So it's basically, can the Justice League lead these people without shifting in the in the tyrannical behaviors? Like, what does the Justice League leading a society actually look like? And it's a mess. They they don't they it, they can't really agree on how to go about anything. They very easily look like absolute pricks and make missteps just with like just saying the wrong thing um a lot of them came off looking pretty bad wonder woman was the only one who came off as actually forward thinking the rest of them just sort of came across as impulsive and not really thinking ahead um the art was it was a little it was something they did something different like the way their lines were uh, or like the way the characters came off from the background, it was, it was different. It was a little strange, but I liked it. It, it stood out as something unique. Uh, so that was a good book. Interesting story for the Justice League. Nice. Um, next on my list is uh, just randomly wanted to rewatch this one night was a uh, Parasite, the uh, best right. picture winner of a few years ago. Um, Anju Ho was the director, I believe. Yes, I yep. think that's his name. Uh, just a nice little uh, twist movie from uh, uh, Korea about this family who sort of indoctrinate themselves slowly into this rich family and kind of scheme their way through to be in the high class of society. Um, and then just completely takes a turn um, halfway through the movie and just becomes insane. I mean, just the writing in this movie is phenomenal. The acting's great. Um, it's crazy how <clears throat> like original it is and how smart it is and how much smarter it was than a lot of movies that came out around that time. I, yeah, I watched it with, uh, with subtitles cause that's the only way to watch it. And it's, um, it's a great film. I think everybody needs to watch this movie as just to have like on your catalog because it is one of the best movies that have come out in recent years. It's, I can't sing the praise it's praise about it, uh, any higher. Cause it's just phenomenal. Um, it, like there's even like some imagery that's even like scary to me. Like when the, when the one scary guy like peeks his head over the stairs, uh, when the little kid's like eating cake, that scared the shit out of me when I watched it the first time I had nightmares about it. Um, great movie. Everyone should watch it. Nice. 
So I watched Training Day with Denzel Washington, Ethan Hawke. Hell yeah. That's, it's really good. Yeah, what I, one of my favorite parts about it is that it's called Training Day, and it's actually a day. It takes place at the beginning of Ethan Hawke's uh-huh. day and follows through to the end of his day. And it's a relatively low-stakes movie, which builds really nicely in intensity. Um, it's a tight script, lots of great dialogue. Denzel is a scene stealer. Ethan Hawke, I mean, he, he was kind of a bit of a bland character, to be honest. But he got better. At, he got more interesting as it went. But when he's but next to Denzel in this particular role, it, it didn't look nearly as good. But he, he it's good. Uh, so, yeah, like I said, tight script, great dialogue. And I, I think it's really interesting story about how dirty should cops get to do their jobs properly. Because Denzel makes some interesting points. Like, well, yeah, I mean, you can have that clean cut kind of thing at the academy. But when you're on the streets, the rules are different. And you can't you can't come in with that idealistic mindset expecting it to go proper out here. You got to you got to get yourself a little dirty. You got to mingle with the locals, do things that you don't you're not necessarily comfortable with. And that's the only way to really do any good out here it's an interesting philosophy a lot of great debates in the movie yeah great movie well uh, well i love that movie i remember watching it like last year for the first time uh phenomenal um next on my list uh i was surprised when it popped up on netflix but it was instantly like number one as soon as it put on there was a top gun maverick favorite movie of 2022 did a rewatch when i was on the uh Really enough, when I was on the train, uh, go train coming back from holiday, they did like free movies and on the go train network, and that was on one. Uh, that was one on them, um, and then I finally finished it when it came on Netflix, and just it's still so good. Like it's just phenomenal. The filmmaking's great. Tom Cruise is excellent. The action scenes alone are just beautiful. It's just it's the tension, the final act tension, and it is so good. It's just one of the best action movies to come out ever. Like, I'm just going to say it ever. It's, I, I love it so much. It, it's so good. All the actors in it are good. great. Miles Teller, Tom Cruise, Glenn Powell, John Hammond. And it is great. It's, it's Jennifer uh, Connelly as the love interest is phenomenal. It's just a smart movie too. It's not overly political. It's not even political at all. It's like the main cast of like their air force pilots are different races and genders and it's not they don't even point it out it's like these are this is the best of the best and some of them are women some of them are minorities and we don't really talk about because it doesn't really need to be talked about they're just the best of the best and that's how you do fucking politics and movies they just say this is what it is uh it's one of the best movies to have come out in the last few years it's one of my favorites it's just so good i always get a rush when watching it and yeah just phenomenal Top Gun Maverick is incredible. I'm going to kind of pair these two up because they're on a similar trajectory. Uh, So first up here, I got Detective Comics, Joker War by Peter J. Tomasi, Brad Walker, James Tinian IV, and Kenneth Rockefort. And also the main Joker War by James Tinian IV, Jorge Jimenez, and Tomu Mori. So the Detective Comics part of Joker War, it's more of a lead up to Joker War or it kind of takes place 
in the middle of it. Um, most of the story is about Two-Face starting this cult, and there's a lot of callbacks to the new 52 run of Batman. It was it was cool. I haven't really seen Two-Face as a main villain in a, in a story for a long time, so it was... Um, it was, it, I, I like, I just like Two-Face and his whole vibe. And now that he's got this cult of devotees who, they kind of had this pair up system where one was like, they like one was kind of messed up and the other one looked good. And they, yeah, like he, it, it was just cool. I don't have a lot to say about it really. The more interesting ones in the detective comics were the ones where the Bat family was trying to, spoilers for this era of Batman, but this was a long time ago, so I'm sorry, but they're trying to get over the death of Alfred um, as a as a family, and those were some really powerful issues. And that's what a lot of the Joker War story is as well. Joker War is weird for me because it's basically the plot of Batman White Knight that I told you earlier, except in main continuity, where the Joker gets a massive leg up on Batman and becomes legitimate in a way that Batman can't contend with and knocks Batman off a pedestal so that he can't really fight back. He basically, he steals the Wayne fortune through some, and leaves Batman broke and then steals all the Wayne Enterprises toys and turns Batman's gadgetry against Gotham City. And that's, it's Joker unleashed. And... Batman's like, ooh, this is actually one of the worst things he's ever done. And and even Harley's like, can we just can we just kill him this time? Can we like let's just let's just stop this. It's only gonna get worse. And uh there's one of the most messed up things I've ever seen in a Batman comic happens at the end of Joker War. It has to do with uh Alfred. It's it's messed up. Uh there's a lot of disturbing imagery in these uh in this story. It ended a little abruptly. I didn't really feel super satisfied by the end of the arc, but it was it was solid. I I think I did I liked it less than I wanted to because I already read Batman White Knight and it's a very similar thing. Like what if Batman's gadgets were turned against Gotham. Like this story was what if Batman's gadgets were turned against Gotham and White Knight was more why doesn't Batman use his technology to help Gotham? Like thematically they're a little different, but basically it's Joker gains legitimacy, brings Batman down to his knees, and Batman's got to reteam up with his family to change the status quo again. So that's Joker War in a nutshell. Nice. Uh, next on my list is uh, another rewatch, but from like when I was a childhood, is a Freaky Friday. Right. I think this is Jamie Lee Curtis's best role ever. Um, she's phenomenal in it. Lindsay Lohan does a pretty exceptional job too, playing a uh, older, playing her mother. It's just the way that, like, the story behind the making this movie is hilarious. Like, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis had a week to prepare or something like that, ten oh, days wow. to prepare for this movie, and. She does a phenomenal job of just and how her and Lindsay Lohan have both like interacted beforehand and talked about it uh, during a scene like, OK, how would you react during this? And OK, then that's how I'll play it. And the chemistry between those two is phenomenal. Uh, you know, early 2000s, you know, racial jokes, not great. You know, Chinese um, 
or um, racism, like subtly in there. But, you know, that was the mid 2000s. So I give it a little leeway. It was a different time. Um, apparently they're doing a sequel or thinking about doing a sequel like both Lindsay and Jamie want to do it. And they're talking with the writers to do it. Apparently they still both have a connection with each other, which is great. Um, right. Phenomenal movie. Great comedy. Jamie Lee Curtis is hilarious. I mean, she embodies the role so well of just like a teenage uh, girl in her mother's body. It's it's so good. That's <laughs> uh, actually one I've never seen, but I ought to at some point. So my grandmother's got a crap ton of books at her house, way more than I'll ever be able to read in a while. But I figure I uh, let I should start reading through them. So the first one I picked here was uh, Weathering Heights by Emily Braun. It was a lot better in retrospect when I read a take that sees it as more of a revenge story than a romance book, which is how most people see it. The revenge story angle makes way more sense. Basically, it's just about social drama in the English countryside between two households spanning decades over like a couple characters, a couple generations of these families. Um... The writing is super poetic, descriptions very vivid, the story is super dramatic, and it's it's funny because none of the characters are especially likable, but everyone's flawed in a way that I had to know how their lives turn out. So there's a lot of moral complexity in this book, a lot of, this is just kind of how life is, this is how people are, and... You you can take it or leave it. It's it's not going to be like I said. It's way more interesting when you look at it as a revenge book, but uh, romance is a big part of it as well. It's just a it's a good slice of life story. What was life like in the countryside for this specific era, and how can a mundane issue spiral out of control to ruin people's lives? Nice. Uh, it's an interesting, interesting book. Uh, next one um, on my list is Raising Kratos, the documentary of the making of God of War 2018 that uh, PlayStation put out. Um, just a fun documentary, uh, documentary about the making of uh, God of War 2018, and Corey Barlog is basically at the forefront of, he's like the main focus of the documentary. The story almost fully comes from him, and you see all the creatives behind it talk about um, how difficult it was, because it really was just like making the game from the ground up of an already established franchise, and the work and dedication that they put into it, um, it's just, it's a great, great documentary for anybody who wants to know how like a video game is made, um, and just the love that Santa Monica Studios has for the character of Kratos, and interacts with the actors as well. There's some emotional moments in the documentary. It's I've seen the documentary maybe about four times. Um, not recently, but just over the span of the past few years. Um, it's a great documentary. I think everybody should check it out who is a fan of the God of War franchise. Great companion piece to the games. I'll check that out when I'm done playing them. So recently I watched the movie Stagecoach, which is a John Wayne classic from... Late 30s, I think 1939. Didn't we watch that at York? Uh, I didn't. Not oh, okay. I thought we did. Oh, well. Sorry, continue. Yeah. Great characters, 
great actors in it. Um, for such a big cast, they balance them all really nicely. What I thought was interesting for it, especially for the period, was that the quote-unquote degenerate characters were more the good ones and the gentlemen and ladies were pricks and they weren't even really apologetic about it. Um, so I just thought that moral that moral quandary was interesting. All the, like the... The drunken doctor, the the prostitute, and the uh, and the escaped convict were more sympathetic than the the ones you would expect to be more sympathetic from this era of social morality. Uh, the action spectacular, or when there was action, there was a lot of in between. Most of it's just them riding in the carriage and talking, um, but it's all really interesting. A lot of cool shots in there. John Wayne's super charismatic. I read afterwards that some of the action in this movie inspired Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then I thought about it a second and was like, actually, yes, there's one action sequence that's literally ripped out in the later Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's a scene where um, uh, the First Nations are attacking the carriage and then one of them jumps on the horse and he he slides underneath the horse while the horses are all galloping and slides under the carriage. And I'm like, this is exactly the Indiana Jones scene where he's sliding under the car in the bull with the bullwhip. It's very, very like hundred percent inspired that not even a doubt. So it's That's pretty funny. It's a great movie. Yeah. It's pretty, impressed. I remember watching it in school. It was either at Humber or it was at York, but uh, yeah, I remember watching it and I remember liking it. Yeah, it's good. Um, next on my list is another we rewatch. Uh, it's ten years old now. Whiplash, great movie. Right. Miles Teller, J.K. Simmons, just about the toxic relationship of uh, what a teacher can have on a student, and that student trying to strive for the teacher's uh, accept uh, acceptance and respect, and you know how much can you push someone to be one of the greats? It really delves into the psyche of that. Fantastic film. Um, everybody should see it. Uh, one of the most quotable lines in, an, in in a movie. It's There's no two words more harmful in the English language than good job. I think that's it's still stuck with me today. Um, Are you one of those single-tier people? <laughs> yeah, J.K. Simmons, he won the Oscar for this role, and it really shows. It's a phenomenal film. I think everybody should watch it. It's uh, one of Dave Chappelle's best, and I don't... I, think he's still yet to beat it just because of how simple the story is and how well the dialogue, the storytelling, the acting is not to say he's made worse movies, but just, they just haven't come close to the quality of whiplash in my opinion. All right. I finally finished Buffy, the vampire slayer took me uh, super long. I started this probably first year of college or even maybe last year of high school. I watched the first three seasons then. Funny enough, I watched the high school seasons when I was just out of high school. And then I couldn't find it on streaming services for a long time. Just got back into it uh, within the last few years. And it's basically, by the end of this, I've basically seen Buffy in real time. So I'm super connected to the characters. Uh, the places they were in life were basically where I was in life every time I watched while I was watching the show. So I, it was, it was right up. It was made for me at those points in my life. So I, I related to it very strongly. 
Uh, so the first half of season seven was really good. Uh, a lot of intriguing setup for the big bad. Great one-off episodes. Getting back to a more light tone after season six, getting really dramatically emotionally heavy. Uh, but the back half of season seven was just a slog. It was super repetitive. Every episode sort of felt the same. Okay, now the, the first is, is going to try and manipulate us. And we're, and we're training the girls to fight the first. And it, it was very, the conflicts just felt, okay, we went through this just five times in the last five episodes. Okay. Uh, the ending was good, though. Uh, they finally remembered Faith was a character. Because, <laughs> like, all of season seven, they're only, they, they, they talk about how Buffy's the Slayer. And there's, and like, she's the only hope. And I'm like, you know there's another one out there, right? Why don't we talk about her? Okay, good. Now we're talking about her. Uh, and the finale killed off my favorite character. I was upset about that. Who? It showed there were, I'm not going to say who. Who? It showed there were consequences. It? Say it. I, I say the name. Say. Do it. It was, it was, say my, it. It was my favorite character. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was Buffy season seven. Great show all around. Just, it was very, yeah, Sarah Michelle Gellar is, this show made me One of the greats. A big fan of hers. Her acting is, it's, it's very rare when I watch actors who can make me empathize with them so strongly. Like when, like when she cries, makes me want to cry. I'm like, oh, you're, you're so good. That doesn't, uh, most actors can't affect me that way, but she, she's so good at everything. And everyone else on the show is just really, they're really funny. Their deliveries are really good. The the drama, the dialogue, the the action, the choreography, the the lore. Buffy's just, it, it deserves its place among the TV greats. I get why people love it so much. Yeah, she's uh she's phenomenal. Uh, third to last on my list is um Avatar: Last Airbender: The Promise. It's been sitting by my bedside for fucking months and months and months. And then I finally ended up finishing it. Literally uh, starts where the series left off with Ain and Katara kissing. And then it's basically just the promise that Ain makes the Zuko if that Zuko forced Ain to make. Uh, if he ever turned bad or turned to his father, that he would kill him. Um, and then the whole comic is just about. Should Aang keep that promise, he gets, you know, um, Aang gets advice from Katara, Avatar Roku, um, if he should keep that promise or not, Zuko is contemplating, he's still trying to find balance in his life, even after the war, if he should, you know, be the ruthless fire lord, um, or be more tailored to his, like, his mother king, his, uh, mother's side, um, it's basically about, it's just more like smart political uh, war stuff, like post-war stuff where there are Fire Nation colonies in the Earth Kingdom and uh, obviously the Earth King wants those uh, wants those colonies back and Zuko's like, okay, I'll help you restore them to the Earth Kingdom. But then when he visits, he realizes that the population of those colonies, they've 
mingled together to become somewhat their own nation. Not really their own nation, but kind of their own population, a more modernized uh, version of um, what the four nations are. Um, they're some the main like uh, character from it is uh, I can't remember her name, but she is the daughter of a firebender and earthbender. Um, she calls herself an earthbender, but she is a firebender. And, uh, or it's the other way around. I can't remember. Fuck. But, um, it's just a great, you know, um, it's just another great, like, avid, uh, last airbender story that, uh, that the creators did after the show. And I think it deserves a read from everybody. And it's, uh, once again, just fantastic writing from the last, uh, avatar or last airbender, um, crew and, just how the complex narrative of Ain and his choices and well, they, uh, what's the lasting effect it will have on the world. And even after the Hundred Years' War, he still has to make big decisions as the Avatar. And uh, yeah. that live action show is coming out in February, and I'm both excited and nervous at the same time. I'm more nervous lately, personally. <laughs> but let's see how yeah. it goes. So I read this book here. Undoctored, How You Can Seize Control of Your Health and Become Smarter Than Your Doctor by Dr. William Davis. That's too big a title. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So there's a lot of good tips in there. Most of the book is about not blindly trusting healthcare practitioners and medical advertisements to make you healthier. It's about how doctors are better for treating actual injuries or far-gone illnesses than more day-to-day illnesses. Um, But the book, it it advocates just being healthier in general so you don't have to see the doctor in the first place and gives you tips to overhaul health. Uh, I'm somewhat skeptical of some things, which is part of the book, is just being skeptical about medical information. Um, But William Davis makes some reasonable arguments that wouldn't hurt to try. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of good stuff in here. I think I'll, I'll start changing my diet to be more like this. Basically he's advocating for, um, kind of a paleo diet thing, sort of. It's basically what you put in your body manifests in your physical health, how you feel manifests your mood, changes a lot of illness. And the stuff we eat today is so like, it's not just the processed stuff, but it's just Things we eat today make us sick, mostly. And choosing our diet better will fix a lot more about our bodies than you would even imagine possible. Which I I believe that is a large part of a problem, is what we consume. It's mostly garbage. Yeah, but it tastes good. Well, yeah. (laughs) No, that's an interesting book. Yeah. Uh... Sounds like a like a good read. Uh, next one I literally just finished today was a Band of Brothers, the miniseries back in two thousand one, I believe. Yeah, um, executive produced by Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg about the paratroopers that dropped in on uh, Normandy on D Day, and then followed yeah. them till the end of World War Two. Just phenomenal, phenomenal miniseries. Just showcases the you know, horrors of World War II um, on television, but it was, it felt like a movie, like every episode goes to show the personal relationships inside the Easy Company, the platoon that was in it. Um, 
great acting all around. There's some, there's even like, cause it was so long ago, like 2001, there's some actors getting their first ever roles that are big names today. Like Tom Hardy, Michael Fassbender, James McAvoy, Andrew mm. Scott. It's pretty, it's insane. Like seeing all those people and how young they were, but yeah, just a phenomenal mini series that I think everybody should watch and just goes to show like what it was like for, uh, for these types of troops and, the di- like base all of it is basically true what they do like it's a very historically accurate miniseries and yeah it's uh, phenomenal phenomenal writing phenomenal well, it's true to life but like phenomenal filmmaking for a miniseries tv show like in the early 2000s it's nuts the battles that they went through it's insane and the it's not too overly graphic but it doesn't hide away from facts either it's just it's it's great it's great television. I'm throwing my family under the bus because I was watching it with them years ago and we never got to finish because they kept putting it off and I'm like, uh. so what I'm those bastards. <laughs> yeah, uh, so I'm not that far from. I've seen most of it, but not all of it. Uh, next up here from the creators of Wall Three Fifty Nine. I love that show, so I. Watch their next show, too, uh, Zero Hours. Or should I say, listen, it's all audio dramas. So Zero Hours is an anthology series about the end of the world, or various end of the worlds from the perspectives of the characters we're following. Um, they, The first one is about this priest and this witch having a conversation when they think the end of the world is happening. The others are about sailors looking for Antarctica, Prohibition era in the 1920s, a modern day telecast where this guy's holding somebody else hostage, um, this couple deciding whether to take a love drug, this uh, city in the sky that's having energy problems, and the last one's about aliens at the end of the world, uh, the actual end of the world. Um, so it takes place from 1722 to 2316 and it's just all these different stories that they don't build on one another until the ending where it ties everything together thematically and it's it's a pretty uplifting ending for a story about the end of the world it's about how humanity can really mess things up but also how we're always trying to do better, even when the deck is stacked against us, even if it seems inevitable, we'll fail. It's really how long can we run the clock out? And if we can keep it running for a while, then, well, good on us. Nice. Um, how many more you got left? Uh, One, two... Technically four, but the fourth is kind of fourth and three are kind of squished. So three, really. Okay. Well, this is going to be weird. I'm going to have you say your three because the last right. one is going to tailor in to next week. <laughs> okay. So my next one, another comic book, The Flash Age by Joshua Williamson, Howard Porter, Rafa Sandoval, and Jordi Tarragona. So this one's about this new villain called Paradox who 
was inadvertently created by the Flash while he was saving the city. And then he decides, oh, I hate Flash. No, I'm going to destroy you and your entire history. So he can kind of time travel and erase Flash from different multiverses and timelines. He's very scary that way. And the only person ever to defeat him was Eobard Thon, Reverse Flash in the future. So Barry has to find Thon to see if he can help him out. Um, and there's also Godspeed, who's another villain from Joshua Williamson's run on The Flash. So it's like Flash has to team up with some of his greatest enemies to take on this paradox guy. The whole thing is really about what is the legacy of Barry Allen and Paradox is trying to figure that out too. Like why, why is Barry Allen the flash everybody remembers? It's like there were flashes before you, there were flashes after you, there were flashes who were even better than you, technically speaking for uh, like they were better at their powers, but what makes Barry Allen special? And they're like, is he special? Cause he's the one who died. And I'm like, that's a shot at the audience right there. <laughs> Like that, that's somebody being self-referential. The book does do a pretty good job of showing why Barry is a special Flash, though, and why his legacy is very important specifically. It's not just that he died, it's who he inspires and how he inspires them. It's, he, he wasn't the first Flash, but he was the Flash who set the precedent for everything afterwards. And that's what makes Barry Allen special mainly is the idea. Uh, So my next one here, I am a couple years late to the party, but I finally watched Hamilton. It's interesting. That's why I was thinking about tick, tick, boom. Nice earlier. Uh, And it lives up to the hype, which I was pretty surprised by. I didn't know if I was going to, Thing oh oh this is a little overrated uh no it's it's extremely well written uh I'm not even really into rap or hip hop that much but Lin Manuel Miranda's writing is it's just it's pleasing to the brain <laughs> just hearing how he can rattle off lines and make rhymes and the music as well and the performances and just I love the rotating stage as well. That's a really, that's a really cool feature of, uh, of the production. Uh, I got a bit of a hot take though, or maybe it's a hot take. I don't know, but, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda is the worst performer in the show. Oh, that's not a hot take. That's the, yeah, okay. that's <laughs> like everybody's opinion. Okay. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't like, I respect the man greatly for, yeah. For he's, his writing talents. It's just he's, something he's about good. his, like, yeah, it's something about his singing voice. It's just, it doesn't compare. It's to, not like, as powerful the, yeah. as the as the other ones. It's, like, mm-hmm. best rapper in the show, though. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you on, on that take, yeah. He's got, he's got great flow and mm-hmm. precision delivery. But in terms of the singing parts, yeah, he was, he was the weakest one. His acting was really good, though. Oh, for sure, yeah. Not a knock on Lin-Manuel Miranda's performance at all. It's just compared to everybody else there. Mm -hmm. But it's his show, so... (laughs) (laughs) He's the star. Uh, I'm not even really into the the founding fathers and the American history and and all that. Like, it's it's a lot of... But it makes me realize, okay, this is why they love their 
their history so much. It's really that there, there it is. Like, yeah. Okay. I, I get why you idolize some of these founding fathers. They're very, they did some really impressive stuff in their time. And it doesn't try to sugarcoat that they yeah. were very flawed people, but it's, yeah, mm-hmm, it, it makes me sure. respect them a lot more. Love that musical. Yeah, love it to death. I used to work out to it, which was pretty funny. It's incredible music. Uh, so all over if you New like, Year's, If you like uh, Hamilton, you should watch In the Heights, which is... I have seen In the Heights like, as well. Oh, you have, right. Yep. My bad. Uh, I really enjoyed In the Heights as well. Uh, so my next and last ones. Uh, so over New Year's... Actually, uh, this is kind of a threefer, but I, I, I'll... Squish them in pretty quick. Um, so over New Year's, Justin and I watched three movies. Uh, we watched Risky Business, Evil Dead 2, and Army of Darkness. And love them all. <laughs> uh, Risky Business is... Um, I just see it as R-rated Ferris Bueller's Day Off, basically. It's like, what if this really crazy thing happened to a teenager... And how would they deal with that? Uh, I love it. The dialogue is really fun in it. Young Tom Cruise is, well, I can see why this guy became a star. Uh, it's really funny. It's this, The screenwriting's really good, too. It's really, it, it's, it does so well at the snowballing effect that stories are supposed to have. Oh, this thing went wrong, and trying to fix the problem made it worse, and it spirals out of control in a great way. Uh... But Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness, that was what stole the night for us. Evil Dead 2 especially, even though it's super low budget, freaking love that movie. It's incredible. I think every prospective filmmaker should watch this movie just to see, okay, really interesting things can be done. It's somehow equal parts horror and comedy. It's scary. I'm actually freaked out by this stuff but I'm laughing at the same time. I don't know how you're doing it, Sam Raimi. And Bruce Campbell's performance in this movie is an all-time great, personally. Like, what he managed to do, especially with his physical acting, like Justin and I were talking later, there's this scene where he's fighting with his hand, and we were so completely immersed in it, we're like, oh, crap, the hand's not actually controlling him. Why are we, like, forgetting that he's actually acting in this scene right now? He's... So good. So underrated as an actor, I think. Um, Army of Darkness, I didn't like as much as Evil Dead 2 because we watched them back to back and they were very tonally different. So that threw me off. But it's still an incredible adventure movie. Super quotable. Hail to the King, baby. <laughs> and it's uh, laugh out loud funny. Great. Just It's just great all around. Great lore. Great characters, fantastic situations, really creative uh, horror elements. Uh, just a great franchise that I never knew I wanted so badly. And now I'm yeah. desperate to see the uh, see the Ash versus the Evil Dead show. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, that is which uh, I've heard is happening. No, it, it already happened. It's, it happened. Had like three seasons. <laughs> See, Not after bad. we watched the movie, we I looked I looked it up, and I'm like, oh, this show was probably garbage, right? And then I'm like, it's got like a ninety on Rotten Tomatoes, and I'm like, like in eight point something on IMDb. I'm like, what? It was actually good. 
Oh, man, I got to see this. That's crazy. Okay, well, randomly, one night, I decided, you know what? I need to watch this. As someone who is into comics, as someone who is into superhero movies, I need to watch this just to have ha- just to have it on my radar because I haven't seen it since I was like four. And I know it's Joe's, one of Joe's favorite movies of all time. So I finally sat down one night, searched it up on my on my TV, and I saw it there, and I pressed play, and I watched Superman 1978 for the first time ever. And, uh, right. yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty damn good. I try to go into it with my critical glasses all the time, and then the John Williams theme started to play, and I'm sitting there with my popcorn, and I caught myself doing this. Just like bobbing my head along to it because it's just so damn catchy. Um, One of the best scenes in superhero movie history is just the scene with him and Margot Kidder having the interview on the balcony. Yeah, that was a really good scene. Someone like, not risky jokes, but like the sexual tension between them two, like the little jokes. What color, what color like, underwear am I wearing? Yeah, like stuff like that, like for 78. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. Their chemistry is phenomenal. Who put Vaseline on like the like flashback scenes for like the camera like for the first half of the movie? It was really weird. It's like it's not it's out of focus, but it's so like it's not yeah. as crisp as the rest of the movie. It's really strange. But the shots of like the Kent farm is just beautiful with a uh, gorgeous scenery um, there. Yeah, with Clark sitting out in the field and his talking to his mom and the barns in the background. I just remember audibly just going, what a beautiful shot. Just gorgeous cinematography. It's peaceful. Yeah, absolutely peaceful. And then I like Christopher how long Reeve. it took him to become Superman. Like yeah. Christopher Reeve doesn't even show up for the first half an hour. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, it's pretty slow for the first half an hour. And then as soon as it gets into Christopher Reeve and, and yeah. Metropolis, the pace goes like that. Mm-hmm. I, I think that and, was intentional. Uh, Oh, like as soon as you get to Metropolis, it's fast. And yeah, when Christopher Reeve comes in, this is the embodiment of Superman that like everybody wanted from the comic books. Just the all good American boy saving the day. His smile is just infectious. He's he just looks the part. He is Superman. It's phenomenal movie. I mean, the little film tricks that they do too, like when it's that one shot of Superman flying away and then. Margot Kidder goes to the door and then Clark Kent's at the door. The how they did that, it's rear projection for Superman as he's flying away. And then when Margot Kidder turns, it's a real set. Uh, just like beautiful like film tricks that, like back well, then. Well, that's just not just film tricks, but that scene also contains one of my favorite acting moments in superhero movies, too. Is when mm. she goes back to the bedroom and he's planning on maybe revealing his identity. He takes his glasses off. And like his body language completely changes. He like yeah. He's, he straightens up. His his face shape changes. Like you mm-hmm. really do see the difference between Clark Kent and Superman. And then she comes back out, and then he throws the glasses back on, hunches down, mm-hmm. and like he he goes from Clark to Superman to Clark again, just in just in his body language, and it's so yeah. noticeable. There's just little moments that make Christopher Reeve so great. Like he runs by like a phone booth, but it's, there's no like opening to it. And he just looks it up and down like shit. And he goes to like a, uh, yeah, yeah, Superman had been around long enough that they were making fun of Superman 
uh, yeah. stereotypes already. Like, yeah, the phone booth thing worked for George Reeves mm-hmm. in the 50s, but it's <laughs> 1970s phone booths don't look like that. Yeah, it's it was it's a really it's a really fun movie. Ending's kind of a cop out, but oh well. <laughs> it's still a yeah, great. Yeah, that one. When the uh spoiler alert, it's what a 50 hold, hold on, let's do the math here. 50, almost 60 years it's old. Like 45. Jesus Christ. 45. Wild. Um old movie when uh Lewis Lane like dies in that avalanche. Christopher Reeves like emotional performance. Holy fuck. Like he's like the slow like realization of like oh he he couldn't save her just like so well yeah. done i mean it's just amazing and then the miniature work as well like the miniature model work in that movie is stellar like some of the best ever like you can't even tell that they're miniatures i mean we can tell because we're filmmakers but just yeah you never can tell that they are miniatures at all and then just the different like superman acts as well like him going into the tectonic plates to like pull them together that's beautiful. That's classic. I don't know how they filmed that, but that's awesome. I think it still looks pretty good 50 years later. Oh, yeah. Like, most of the action is pretty pretty well done. It was a, I, it was a major special up. effects showcase at the time because the, the tagline mm-hmm. on the poster was, you'll believe a man can fly. They'd never done convincing human flight effects in movies yeah. before. So it was pretty pioneering. Mm-hmm. Um, you got me rambling on one of my favorite movies. <laughs> got to wrap up. And now... Uh, now I have a question for you is, um, well, two questions actually. Now that I've watched the first Superman movie, do I watch part two or do I watch yes. part two, the Donner cut? Uh, this is the question of the week. This is the, this is the official <laughs> may as well. We forgot to do it last time. Last two yeah. times are bad. Official question of the week is which, which Superman sequel, um, Okay, look, I'm gonna spoil the Donner cut part, the Donner cut for you because this is this is the problem with the Donner cut, is that it wasn't finished. They right. filmed parts one and two back to back. Richard Donner, yes, um, and then Richard Donner got fired partway through production on part two. So the studio put that that turned the world in time back around. Ending was supposed to be the ending for part two. Mm-hmm. But they threw it at the end of part one instead. Right. So in the Richard Donner cut, that's based. That's how it ends again. Is the is the time yeah. turning? Thing. I, I, they yeah, didn't I have that part. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the only shot I have against the Donner cut of Superman two is that it it's the same ending, just because he never got to do the the ending that he was supposed to do. So he just had to reuse that. Uh so the Lester cut, there's more the Richard Lester cut, the theatrical cut. There's more original scenes in it. There's a lot I really <coughs> enjoy about it. There's like this entire sequence in Paris where Superman saves Lois from the Eiffel Tower. Like that that's all original in the uh in the Richard Lester cut. Um but the Donner cut I think is more thematically paralleled to the first mm. one. You can tell that despite the fact that it's a little choppy because they never actually finished it, that part one and two were supposed to flow together. The theatrical cut of part two is more, there's definitely more comedy to it. You can tell that a lot of the movie was done by Richard Donner, but there's enough differences that, okay, yeah, they're, they're going for a slightly different tone and they're both good. 
But from part one to part two, the Richard Donner cut is okay. We're we're continuing the story in a more meaningful way. Because one of my favorite scenes from the Richard Donner cut is so in the rich in the theatrical cut, there's a scene where he's talking to his mother, and it's a, it's a really nice scene. Um, but they didn't get Marlon Brando back for the theatrical cut. But in the Richard Donner cut, there is well, a scene. With, <laughs> yeah, there is a scene back with Marlon Brando. I mean, it's well, yeah, he's dead, but he was alive when they filmed it. Right. Uh, but yeah, it, they just cut that scene and replaced it with him talking to his mother instead. But in the Richard Lester cut, uh, he's talking to his mother. But in the Donner cut, he's talking to Jor-El again, which ties it more into the first movie. So, yeah, you could say, okay, that yeah, that's interesting. We haven't seen his mother before. This is a slightly different dynamic. But the relationship we care about was with his father, and that continues through. And that scene, I think, is way more powerful. Christopher Reeve's acting in that scene is incredible. Uh, the story's basically the same either way. It's just little differences. If anything, they're both fun to watch just to see what changed. Once again, Joe, you somehow created a option one or two question and made an option three. <laughs> Richard Donner cut is the answer. If you don't okay. care about the ending being the exact same. Yeah, I don't care. Um, if you're like, I want an original ending. Okay, watch the other one. Nice. Nah, I don't care. That ending was a cop-out, too. Let's be honest. Yeah, okay, you haven't seen it. But it was a cop-out, too. Oh, well. Well, those are our lists. Welcome to our uh, Snyder Cut, again, of the (laughs) leisure list. (laughs) Should we start doing these leisure lists every two months instead of three? Maybe. Or should we just have a a two-and-a-half-hour episode every three? I don't know. They're getting getting long. (laughs) We've just been cramming stuff in around the December break. We watch too many stuff. I know. We don't want to seriously consider doing more leisure lists, shorter episodes. Yeah. Alrighty. Well. Okay. I'll wrap things up here. Yeah. You can find me at Ryan Walker Official on YouTube, TikTok, and on Instagram. And you can find me on Facebook and TikTok at Thoughtplane Media. Also, check out our Ryan and Joe Facebook page for latest updates on the show. Uh, You can follow us. I don't have the document open. I don't know what I'm saying this time. Find us at all the places. All all the places for wrap-up that I'm botching horribly. Blah, blah, blah. YouTube channel. If on YouTube, find us anywhere (laughs) you get favorite podcasts. Uh, See you next time where we talk about something Ryan hasn't even told me. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Till next time. Oh, take care.